At Mulholland Drive, it was so different. It was, you got the appointment, and I was like, oh my God, I have an appointment for a David Lynch, you know, pilot. This is amazing, this is amazing. Okay, fantastic, you know, where are the sides? Where's the script? You can't read the script, and there are no sides. And basically, you showed up, and David just wants you to talk. Just to tell a story, you pick the story, whatever, just just talk. And so your mind is exploding because you're like, oh my God, what should I talk about? I, like he wasn't in the room and, and I found out later that he was watching, but I didn't know. And I wish I remembered what story I told. I don't even know if it was a succinct story or just kind of <laughs> rambling, <laughs> which I'm apt to do. But I talked and um, that that was kind of it. That was so strange. And, uh, and that was it. So I get a phone call later that day and they were like, okay, um, he loved it. He wants you to come back in. And I was like, okay, great. Is, are there sides now? Is he going to be there? Nope. Nope. It's going to be the same thing. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. What is going to be my next story or whatever? Hello, and welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. Of all genres of film, few genres match horror for giving strong roles to women for as long as the horror genre has. Elsa Lanchester, Betty Davis, Janet Leigh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Sigourney Weaver, Dee Wallace, and Nev Campbell, all examples of actors who portrayed women of strength and power. In a genre that so many associate with women in peril, these women reminded audiences that not only could a woman survive the night, she could do so with depth and ferocity. My guest today is one such actor. Though she has worked in a wide variety of genres, she has earned her place in the Horror Hall of Fame through her work with filmmakers like David Lynch, J.S. Cardone, and Mary Lambert. Always challenging, mysterious, unexpected, and grounded in the role she is portraying, she is an actor that demands your attention as soon as she enters the frame. My guest today is Laurie Herring. Laurie's an actor whose work I have always greatly admired. There's an intrinsic strength and integrity she brings to her work. She's played many different kinds of characters, and all of them are unique. Some of them good, some bad, and some in between, and Laurie always finds the inroad to creating a character that I end up rooting for. I think it has a lot to do with who Laurie is as a person. Laurie is a caring, razor-sharp, funny, genuine, thoughtful person, and I think she compels filmmakers to cast her in roles that show these qualities. Though she is, of course, beautiful, this ain't your gal if you're looking for the archetypal slasher fodder. Lori and I talk on her formative years developing her craft while growing up in Texas, why she is drawn to working on darker stories, and why she enjoys the challenge of working on edgy, independent films over big studio projects. I've had the great privilege of directing Lori in a film, and I soon learned that her tremendous talent as an actor is also matched by her equally tireless work ethic. So, let's get into what it takes to becoming one of the great screen queens with Lori Herring. Hey, Lori. Hi. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah? I'm, I'm good. Okay, I'm good. Great. It's been a long time. I'm trying to think of, I think it was, I saw you last, what, three years ago? Yeah, that would make sense, kind of before before the world stopped spinning for a bit. 
So this was interesting. I I in I was cracking into sort of what I could find in the magical world of internets. Um okay. and uh I didn't know that you were born in Panama City. Not Panama City, Panama. Uh the the country. Um they don't call it The internet city. lied to me. Imagine that. <laughs> what a shocker. What a shocker. Um, yes, my dad was Air Force, and he was stationed in Panama, and my mom and dad had both their children there, so I have some South America blood by proxy. How long did you spend in Panama? Not very long. I think they left when I was like six months old, and then they did a little waylay in Dayton, Ohio, and then we were in Austin, Texas by the time, right before I was two. So I spent my whole life through all school and and in, actually until I moved to L.A. in Austin. Okay. So Austin basically feels that's home. Austin's home, yeah. And I didn't realize how cool Austin was really until I left. And then I was like, wow, Austin's the best. You have all this live music. The people are so chill and down to earth. And you just whole tech world and the university world and the whole film world. And it kind of eased my way to L.A. because right when I was moving out, to LA, I had a, a really, really good friend who was a filmmaker in Austin, or is a filmmaker in Austin. And one of his very good friends did this tiny little film festival there, like as a side, not, not to do with Austin Film Festival or South by Southwest or anything. He just did this tiny little thing where he invited like four people, <laughs> but he owns all these original reels of all these B-horror films and, or just B-films in general, but a lot of them are horror and he would just rent out a theater and screen them. And there would be like six of us. And one of the girls that was there was one of his friends. And she lived in LA and we became friends. And she said, well, I said, I'm actually moving out there not, in not too long. And she said, well, here's my number. When you move out, call me. And she's to this day, one of my best friends. So it was cool. When did you start to sort of get the acting bug? Like, did you do theater and all that or? Yes, I, I think I had the acting bug for as long as I could remember. I grew up ice skating. Um, I did that for like 10 and a half years. And I think that kind of waylaid, I mean, it was parallel, but just the idea of performing. Um, I think, I don't know if one sparked the other, but I always loved performing and loved, to be honest, becoming someone else and kind of putting on their their world. And I still love that. I still love disappearing. It's it's funny when you get so into that, you you aren't yourself very much. And so becoming those other people, you kind of go, oh yeah, yeah, no, I don't matter at all. I'm I'm just invisible in the corner over here, but these people matter. So I think um, I always, always have liked that. So I think, I mean, I remember doing plays when I was really little and then getting into local theater and then in school. Um, and then just getting the acting bugs because Austin was catching it. And there were a lot of things going on there. There were, I did some modeling and that kind of waylaid into some commercials. And then that kind of waylaid into some guest spots. And then the first, I moved to, well, I went to New York for a summer and I got my first movie there. Um, it was called Animal Room. And it was Matt Lillard and Neil Patrick Harris and Amanda Peet. Um, and a bunch of, like, four other kids who were just awesome. And um, that was my first movie. So it was really fun kind of experience 
talking to Neil a lot because he was, you know, you knew him from Doogie Hauser then and kind of hearing his take on things. And it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, um, it's people, it's sometimes hard to explain to, to people who don't, don't work in, in, um, the film and television business, how small it can really be. Oh my gosh. It's tiny. It's the tiniest world. It's, it really is. It's like a tiny little neighborhood. And even though you live all across LA, when you go to something or auditioning or meetings or parties or whatever it is, it's a tiny world. And it's funny because I've always noticed about people from, from Texas, they're, they're not Uh-oh. dissimilar to people like from Boston. Yeah. And the, and that, that sort of uh, stick togetherness when they get out to LA. Like I knew a bunch of people when I was living in Los <laughs> Angeles who kind of formed this little Texas troupe. Do you find that being from Texas when you meet other Texans oh, yeah. that there's sort of a kinship immediately? A hundred percent. I have a ton of Texas friends here. Um, and then it's funny, a, a few of my friends who lived here and who are not from Texas during the pandemic have moved to Austin. So now they've become Texans um, and they're all actors. And it's, it's funny. I think the Texan lifestyle and attitude is very much what I think actors like. It's very gypsy. It's very low key. Um, anything goes. There's not a lot of judgment. So it's very, it's very gypsy, which I consider actors to be this, the, the, the lifestyle a bit because you never really know what your life is going to take you and everything always is different. And so uh, I like it. Circus freaks. <laughs> oh, you, didn't you work on a movie with McConaughey at one point? Who's of course a prominent Texan actor. Um, he, I, I know him very well. He's um, a, a dear friend. We never did a movie together, but I met him. I met him through, through Renee Zellweger and Rory Cochran from Dazed and Confused. So they met him on Dazed. And then it was actually Rory's birthday. And uh, Renee invited me and we all went and I met him. And I, I just heard an accent from down the table. And I was like, well, man, that's a Texas accent. And then we started talking and, and, and became fast friends. So he's great. But he, he brought a whole troop of Texans with him when he came from Austin. And, and they're all great. It, it, it feels like home whenever I was around them and, and everything. Cause it, it just felt like you were in Austin, but in LA. So it felt safe. Did that create sort of a sense of kind of rooting for him, you know, as his career started to really pick up and then he of course won an Oscar and all that. Did, do you kind of feel that with, with people that are from where you're from? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things anywhere you are in life, you have to worry about who you can trust and who you can't. So I think if you have people around you that you either brought from home or they've been vetted or whatever, I think it gives you this sense of, you know, you can trust them. And I think that's, that's probably the biggest thing for anybody in any field, you know, just knowing that, that someone has your back. But I think out here too, because friendships can be fast and furious and then decimate. Um, I think it's vitally important that you know that you have people that are roots and that will can smack you across the face if you're getting too big for your britches and just, you know, hold you tight, that kind of thing. Because it's funny, because the, the scope that you and I met in, of course, was when we first met was on a on a, a, a film project. And so we just, that's how we met. And we started out, on, on, you know, doing a film together and then became friends on that project. But I don't think mm-hmm. I ever knew that you had a, a a business degree from the University of Texas. I don't think that's had, that had ever come up. And I read that. <laughs> when did you do that? I, mean, I was trying to figure out where you would have fit that in. Uh, right after high school, I started. Um, and... 
you know, my dad, I, I wanted to go into the theater program. I wanted to go into, you know, communications, into anything that would, would, would keep me in that world and, the, and introduce me more to the film world. But my mom was against it because she thought that I might, you know, lose my interest in it at some point. And then where was I? But my dad gave me a great analogy that I'll never forget. And I'm going to put it in my pocket and save it for when my kids <laughs> um, want to do something that I don't agree with. But he said to me, he goes, okay, you love books. You love libraries. When, when you go, you know, what section do you go to? And I'm like, well, I mean, you have other fascinations, but I'm always drawn to the autobiographies, the biographies, any, anyone in film, the backstory of films I've loved, you know, that kind of thing. And he said, okay, right. That's what I thought you'd say. So why would you pay someone to teach you something you're teaching yourself? And <laughs> I thought about it and I was like, well, because they're better than me at it is a good answer, but you're right. You know, because if I'm fascinated with this subject and it's, and it's going to be something that I constantly devour as far as reading and learning, it, it, I guess it could be ventured to go for something that I would never teach myself. And then that way you're just more rounded and, and you have it. So I thought, well, what would I never be interested in teaching myself? And I thought, finance, business. So um, I, I went to the um, honors business school. They, it's, it's University of Texas, but then you apply for this separate part of the business school. It's called honors business program. And you do that. And uh, it was, it was awesome. It was great. It was these tiny classes of, you know, 10, 12, 16 people. And they would get CEOs from companies who had already made it to a point where they said, I want to go back and share my experience or teach. And so you'd have the CEO of some company teaching you for a semester. And it was, it was fascinating. I mean, I think it cemented that I didn't want to do that, <laughs> but um, cause I don't think I like the rigidity of, of that uh, for me. I like more of a set where you're kind of, you're in some warehouse in some foreign country and you know, you are there for 30 days and nights and you create this piece of something that's going to be around forever. And it's a moment in time and yeah, but yep, I have a degree so I can um, help you with your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that getting that, you know, that education has served you in some ways in your career as an actor? Yes, for sure. Because I think, I think at least the actors that I strongly admire, the one thing that I find about them is how fascinating they are and how rounded they are and how intelligent they are. And I think, again, in my experience, the people that I've worked with that I truly, truly, you know, really admired before I worked with them or then after, there's something about them. Their, their focus isn't just being an actor. They're multifaceted and they have these views on so many things and intelligence in so many ways. So I think for me, it gave me just a little extra hidden confidence of a, you know, you do have that. I, I heard something one time when I first started that said, if you have something to fall back on, you will. And I don't know if I agree with that or not, but it's definitely something that stayed in my head. And so even though I had that, I never wanted to fall back on it per se, but I love having that knowledge and just knowing that, that, that I could do it and that I pursued something and did do it. And, you know, so I think, I think it matters. I think everyone finds their own path for sure. But I know when I've sat and spoken to Gene Hackman on set, you know, and listened to him talk, he's an author, he has this, he does this, you know, and you're just like blown away, but you're Gene Hackman. And, but yet he has 
all these other facets that that I didn't know about. And he's so intelligent and just rounded. And and that goes for pretty much everyone that I've that I've ever gotten the chance to sit down with that I really admired. So yeah, yeah, I, I like it. I think it's you know it's it also seems to be like a very sensible and logical thing to to, to take as if you know when you call it backup, but um, business is like it's show business. It's the film business. There's a lot yeah. of business in this career, in this, in this field. So Massive understanding business. that aspect of things to some, yeah, I think, you know, that's a logical fit. It's not like you went and, you know, studied to be an ornithologist and, and then became an actor. Like, um, I did that. I did that after you know? <laughs> the ornithology, just of birds. Yeah. And so I want to ask, cause this is something I sort of, I ask everybody when they come on the show, do you remember your first, experience being scared at the movies do you remember the first movie that really made an impression on you as in terms of the horror i know exactly what movie it is um i was in colorado um my brother (laughs) my brother was starting at the air force academy and my i was i insisted on coming with my dad to drop him off mainly because i could get out of school and we went to the movies one day and we went to see pet cemetery and i remember like viscerally when the cat that they had buried came back to life and scared you on screen. I was petrified. I think I screamed so loud and it was, I remember that so well. That was like, was like the first moment. I mean, I was a little bit older. I mean, way back when I remember ET kind of scaring me in like a really fun way, but that one was my gigantic, like fear fright. So that was it. Mine too. That was mine. That's mine. Are you serious? Ah! I saw that. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. I've told, I've told this story on the show before, but what happened was um, I started to get like into horror because I saw, I became really hooked on Thriller, the Michael Jackson video. Um, I was just so, you know, yeah, I was so mesmerized by the makeup and the, you know, the Vincent Price and just the whole spooky. I loved all that already, but in a much more of a kid way. And then, we were at a video store, uh, and my sister sort of tricked my parents into renting Pet Cemetery. I was probably eight or nine <laughs> years old to renting Pet Cemetery because she told them it was like a Doctor Doolittle type of movie, like you know where these these you know pets oh, wow. come back yeah, and they guess, they have okay. adventures with these kids and yeah. And I don't know why my I'm convinced my dad knew, but I think he was like, <laughs> "Fine, let's let them get the shit scared out of them." But my mom didn't know. I'm sure my dad knew because he would have looked and went Stephen King and he knew who Stephen King was. Yeah, but yeah. my mom didn't know. So we all sit down as a family, you know, two kids, oh mom God. and dad, to watch fucking Pet Cemetery. <laughs> 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 and as soon as Pascal, the kid that gets hit by the car, is on the gurney and the and and Oof. they'll make Cap's character, yeah. the, the the father, the main character is he's his head's open and he sits up and says, you know, all this this scary stuff. My mom just stood went, nope, and walked out. And then like a few minutes later, um, my sister's like, this is too scary. And then she left. So I was just like mesmerized. And then about halfway through when the little boy gets hit by the car, my dad was like, I don't think I should let you watch this. I was like, I'm watching it. Like I was not willing to like, I'm already halfway through. And, uh, and I watched the whole, yeah, yeah. And I watched the whole movie and then I spent the next three months sleeping on the floor on a sleeping bag in my parents' room. Kicking your dog out of the house. Not even kidding. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. It's amazing how many people say that movie was the one that really, like that are around our age bracket, choose that movie as the wow. one that really That's got amazing. To them. You know, people there's that are, so are, many, but yeah. People that are older than us always pick Exorcist. Oh, yeah. I didn't see that for, for, I didn't see that for a while. And then when I saw it, it's wicked. It's wicked. But there, it, it was, there was so much to that movie that was, I don't know, the whole religious component. And I mean, it was creepy. That one, oh my God. That one like goes in you more. Pet Cemetery was one of those <laughs> that just was like, ah, you know, and it was, yeah. I want to uh, talk about Mulholland Drive. All right. First of all, it's interesting because I was reading up about Mulholland Drive and I thought I knew a fair bit about Mulholland Drive. And I knew there was, I knew there was, it started as a, what was supposed to be a series. And I knew that the series didn't get picked up and that, that instead it became a feature. What I didn't know was that the movie is, and I'm still unclear about this, is the movie the same material that was shot for the pilot, but with added material? Yes. So we all auditioned for a pilot for, for, the, for a TV series. And at the time, you know, they were, you would pour so much money into a pilot and if it didn't get picked up, it was dead, which always befuddled me because I thought, well, if this network doesn't want it, you know, let it go to somebody else, have them buy it. But they were, everyone was always too afraid of them turning down, say project A and then another network buying it and it becoming some huge hit. So they were like, nope, if we don't want it, no one can have it. So this was a pilot and we, there's so many stories about this movie, but um, it didn't get picked up. And so David called each of us and um, said, I'm not gonna jump ship. I'm not letting this go down. I'm gonna make something of this. And if I'm not wrong, I think he was the first person ever to, when a, when a pilot was killed, to be able to get the rights back and sell it. And he sold it to uh, Canal Pleu. And then because of the length and because of the pilot aspect of leaving you on a, as a cliffhanger so you would watch the series, we went back and shot two more weeks. But he shot four alternate endings. Again, this was what I was told in my understanding. And so one ending, you know, had this happen. Another ending had this happen. And then he just kind of decided how he wanted it to be get, to get edited and pieced together and how he wanted, you know, to build his movie. And he did. And that's what ended. And it's very funny because they had, he had us all over to his house before we started shooting, like the night before early. And he's one of the most interesting men. And he, you know, my, my manager gave me the address and I went and it, there were two identical concrete houses, just beautifully architectural, perfectly, you know, perfect houses. And I was looking at the address and I was kind of like, wait, it's that, oh wait, but the, the, wait, which one is it? And I walked up to the door and as I walked up, you just heard the door opened and you just heard, come on in Lori. And I was like, oh, this is so funny. And then there was one staircase. So of course you're going to go up it. And then the staircase led to one room and there were tables and chairs, like a table and chairs in there. And everyone kind of did the same thing, I guess. And it ended up being 
um, again, from from what I understood as the pilot that would turn into the TV show, it was Naomi Watts, Laura Herring, me, um, Laurie Herring. So <laughs> that was that was confusing, and then um, Melissa George. And then it was Angelo Badalamente who was in in the series. It was also his composer. And then there were, I think, Robert Forster and um, two, I think, two other people. But the way he explained it was the first episode would be Naomi and Lara, and then it would end, and it would be uh, Naomi and myself, and then that would end, and then myself would carry on to... Melissa George, and then Melissa George would carry on to Laura Herring, which would wrap it back around. So it was supposed to just kind of feed off, you know, as as Lynchian sort of like handoffs do exactly. And um, yeah, and so when it didn't get picked up, you know, he was left with the pilot. So he kept on. We kept on shooting and did alternate endings for that. So it was. It's a. It's a. It's such an interesting world how that all happened because I remember going and doing ADR for it. And I remember Naomi, who's the sweetest person ever. They were all so nice or are so nice. And I remember she was kind of said, yeah, I think I'm going to go back to Australia. You know, I don't, I don't know that I was really hoping this got picked up. I don't, I don't know that I'm going to stay in LA any longer. And I was like, oh my God, you have to, like, you're so lovely and this and this. And she goes, I don't know. Like, it's, it's tough. I think I'm just probably going to head back. And then the movie became what it what it became and her career became what it is. And, um, I love that. So it worked so out great. for her in, in the end. It worked, it worked out. Okay. Yeah. For, for it, it's okay. It's fine. What's, what's, yeah. What was it? What was Whatever. the actress's name? I don't remember. Um, Australian, um, <laughs> Naomi Watts. She's awesome. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 She's wonderful. And she's wonderful in the movie, of course. I mean, I think that movie really is what like sort of kicked her right into. You oh, hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because yeah. she, she's so great. And that movie was at the right time and the right everything. And it's, yeah. I just wish I could have seen what the series was going to be because he, he told us all our storylines and it was, you know, it's David Lynch. It was phenomenal. So. It's funny to me because like having seen the film and, and kind of imagining what the show might've been, it feels like Lynch was sort of in a prophetic way, kind of seeing what ended up happening with the me first movement. And so, you know, it's a very, the movie is a lot <laughs> about, you know what I mean? Like it's. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought about it that way, but yeah, I mean, he always is, at least in my opinion, he's, he's always kind of, he's so cerebral and coming up with things. And it is, inter- it is interesting that, that, that to look in hindsight, you know, it's kind of 2020. It's interesting. So I, I was reading about kind of like the whole, you know, thing of what happened with the show and when the show didn't go and how, you know, what what's always so shocking to me is like you think of a name like David Lynch it, and that that would be enough for a network alone to go, well, we're just going to trust it. You know, even if we don't really know what to do with this or what this is, it's David Lynch. He's, you know, he's he's one of the great O-Tour directors. He knows his craft. If we're getting in the David Lynch business let's get in the David Lynch business and let him do his thing. I mean, to try to think, you know, it's, it's not, it's not even surprising to me though, that a network would get a David Lynch pilot and go, what the hell is this? You know what I mean? Like it's David Lynch. That's, you know, you have to be calibrated a certain way, I think to even, 
know how to experience his work. So do you remember like when the pilot did David ever explain to you guys like to the cast like what happened why the pilot didn't go? Um yes, I mean he said basically the network passed on it and he, you know, he went in and fought for it and explained everything, but I think you're exactly right. I think you know networks have you know, I think individually so many brilliant people doing their job, but then collectively you know, I think it's scary because if if there's one voice and you're not agreeing with it, then you know, it's a, it's a little bit of that, at least in my experience where, you know, I've had, I've had so many tests on things where you had one person fighting for you and, you know, everything was working out. And then kind of one person said, nope, that's not the, that's not the person. And then everyone followed suit and you kind of go, oh, but wow, there were all these other opinions. So I think, you know, in that case, I think that there was a strong voice kind of saying, I don't get it. I'm never going to get it. I don't want it. And then, you know, People followed and David didn't win, um, much to their detriment, obviously, because it became such an interesting movie, proving that there was an audience for it. But he really fought hard for it. And, and you know, he made he made the personal phone calls to us that said, I'm not giving up. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make mm-hmm. something out of this. And, you know, he he had talked at one point about doing a follow-up movie for it, but you know, I think his attention goes where his brain leads it. And I, I don't know that that it was that interesting to him anymore after kind of creating this whole entire universe and then being told no. So, um, you know, I I just, I think he's a genius and I'm I'm bummed to not see, to not have that opus told because it was really, really interesting. Like, I'm curious, you know, I think people are really familiar with stories of, of, you know, actors talk about projects that, that almost happened or that, you know, where they, they were, da- you know, it's down to them and one other person or, or, you know, the movie, you know, some calamity happens and the movie shoots for five days and gets shut down and never, they never finish it. But I, you know, I think it's interesting to think of from the standpoint of having, you know, been a part of a film that went on to become really a, a sort of a, I think a, a landmark film for the time it, that it was made in. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's a movie that's been studied a lot and has a huge, um, appreciation for it. Uh, you know, it, it what is the emotional kind of experience that you went through being like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be on a David Lynch show. And then, you know, he'd done Twin Peaks. Like, I'm curious for an actor, what that emotionally, what that's like, what the kind of disappointment or the kind of the, the feelings that you would have, you know, when something goes that way like this. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's interesting that question because it is a roller coaster and that one, especially, so you're so used to auditioning and pilot season is so crazy you know, now everything has changed with, with, you know, the pandemic and COVID and everything. Um, but back then you would have, you know, two or three pilot meetings a day and you, you know, be in one outfit, changing in your car, driving across town to Sony to have another appointment. And, you know, then you'd get the call in the car when you're on your way to a third appointment that the first appointment needs to see you back like now. And, you know, so it's crazy, but it's exciting and fun. And that one, you know, most auditions work where you don't, you, you, you do get the chance to read a script, but you don't get a chance to talk or process anything. You, you just get the script, you get what pages your sides are. And then sometimes you don't get the script. Sometimes you just get the sides and you're like, this makes no sense. You, and you just kind of have to take a stab in the dark at what you hope is what they want. And then in most rooms you get to ask, you know, this is my take is, am am I right? And then 
a lot of times you'll get, why don't you just give us your take? So there's, it's so nebulous with, with what you're supposed to do. And I guess a lot of times they're just looking for that magic of, yes, you got it and that's it. And that means you're the person. But in this case, in Mulholland Drive, it was so different. It was, you got the appointment and I was like, oh my God, I have an appointment for a David Lynch, you know, pilot. This is amazing. This is amazing. Super excited. And I said, okay, fantastic. You know, where are the sides? Where's the script? Mm, you can't read the script and there are no sides. And I, I, I went, well, how, 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 how are there no sides? How, how, what are we supposed to do? And they said, you're going to show up. And casting director was this lady named Joanna Ray. And then her assistant was Elaine Huzar. I still remember the names and just phenomenal casting directors. They just made you feel so at ease. And basically you showed up and you, there was one other person waiting before me and they got called in and I'm kind of waiting, waiting, waiting. They leave. And then I go in and Hey, Lori, how's it going? I'm like, great. So there's no sides. And they're like, nope, nope. So David just wants you to talk, just to tell a story. You pick the story, whatever, just, just talk. And we'll, we'll kind of tell you when it's time and, you know, and that'll be it. And so your mind is exploding because you're like, oh my God, what should I talk about? Do do you talk about yourself? Do you talk about something that happened? Do you talk about- Does he, does he give you a prompt? Does he say, does he ask you a question or or do you- Nothing. And to be honest, I didn't even, like he wasn't in the room and, and I found out later that he was watching, but I didn't know. Um, cause they had a camera and stuff, but I, I didn't know, I didn't know that. And so, um, and so I just kind of started telling a story, you know, I was kind of like, I'm from Texas da, 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 da. and I wish I remembered what story I told. I don't even know if it was a succinct story or just kind of <laughs> rambling, <laughs> which I'm apt to do, but I talked <laughs> and, um, that, that was kind of it. And, uh, you know, they, they interacted and stuff and said, great, Lori, thank you so much. You know, and I'm like, that was so strange, but thank you. You know, that was easiest audition ever. You don't have to remember lines. You don't, you can't do it wrong. Cause you're just talking about your own brain. And, uh, and that was it. So I get a phone call later that day and they were like, okay. Um, he loved it. He wants you to come back in. And I was like, okay, great. Is, are there sides now? Is he going to be there? Nope. Nope. It's going to be the same thing. And I was like, <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. What is going to be my next story? I mean, story were you that surprised? Cause it's David Lynch, right? You kind of prepare for that. It's probably not going to be the, the, the humdrum norm. I guess. I mean, I don't know. Lynch. I still thought that there would be like a soliloquy or something. something I don't yeah. know. Dancing <laughs> yeah, on yeah. one foot while you're drinking a Coke. I, I don't know. Something that would just be different, but I, I did not expect to have no parameters and to have no direction to just go. And um, I loved it, but so then I went back in, I think it was the next day and, um, and did the same thing. And I just told another story and I think they had a couple questions and we, you know, had a conversation about those things and they were like, great, Lori, thank you so much. I was like, again, this is so strange. Thank you ladies so much, whatever. And then I got a phone call you know, I'm like on pins and needles or whatever, but then you still have your, your other appointments. So you got to learn those things and go. And, um, I think I got a phone call a couple of days later saying you got the part. And I was like, Oh my God, wait, 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 I, what part? <laughs> and they said, we don't know. You just have a part. And I was like, well, I, okay. Is that, I mean, a part? So you like, were, do you, it wasn't at that, that stage. It, a- it wasn't even like, 
You don't even know what you're accepting. I didn't even know what I was accepting. You're accepting David Lynch. Right. And, yeah. um, but by accepting that, you're also taking yourself out of first position for any other show. But it's David Lynch, so of course you will. So you just pull yourself out of contention and, you know, then you're kind of just sitting back and being like, yeah, I'll go on all these other appointments. I'm in second position because, yeah, you know, and you feel great. Um, and then it was it was probably like two weeks later that we were able to read something, but it still wasn't like a full script. And it and then it was a full phone call. And he described everything and said, OK, you're doing this and doing that. And it was interesting because he's just he's so gentle and so intelligent. You just kind of are are grasping at every word uh, for what it holds and everything. But I remember hanging up with him and going, okay, so my character's name was Lorraine. And I remember asking him, is she named Lorraine because my name is Lori? Or is that just a happy accident? And he was like, I don't know. And I remember being like, good answer, <laughs> good answer. That's a very appropriate And then response, the character yeah. ended up being this very materialistic, um, you know, I mean, she had a really cool storyline that went that went a lot deeper and and it really kind of exposed that that was all a front and everything. But but in the the movie or in the pilot, I remember thinking, okay, this is a girl that lives in this big glass house, literally a glass house, and, you know, is so concerned with her jewelry and having an affair with the pool man, Billy Ray Cyrus. And, you know, when she gets caught, she attacks the bodyguard. I mean- She's a horrible person, like a yeah, horrible person. And I vile, thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, is that what I portray? <laughs> like, is that that's what I got typecast in? Interesting. And I remember making a joke to him and he was like, no, 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 no. It's the rest of the stuff. You know, it's all of this stuff. And, and but but yeah, I can see how you think that, you know, and I was like, OK, whew. <laughs> it was funny. Like, I'm curious, like, is 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 David Lynch when you're like. Is he ever silly or just like, is he not, is he ever so not silly. cerebral? Okay. He's so, so gentle. And so he's almost childlike. Okay. I remember being so surprised because I've worked with other directors that feel like if I crack a joke, I'm going to get in trouble. And it's, it's incredibly serious and there's no room for jokes. And, and he wasn't like that at all. Um, and it also felt, I think one of my favorite things about shooting that being a huge film fan and see, having seen so many of the, you know, originating Hollywood films back in the day, Shot Corridor, I mean, you know, all, all, all of these crazy, strange movies that that created kind of that genre. And then, you know, and, and even thinking back to like Cecil, Cecil uh, DeMille and, you know, all of these people who you hear stories about, and then on set with him, he actually used a megaphone. Oh, actually really? Actually <laughs> used a megaphone, yeah. You would be, you know, he'd be at Video Village, um, which is the, where the monitors are, you know, for to, to see the takes and everything. I know you know that, Kevin. I'm just saying that for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Um, I, I appreciate but, it, yeah. The, uh, this is why we don't thanks. have to have little pauses in the, in the audio where I said the, to the listeners, this is what this is. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Exactly, exactly. So he's kind of in another room, <laughs> Video Village, and you're shooting like another room away, so you don't have eyeline per se, but you're doing it whatever. And he'll go, okay, now hit him harder, but through a megaphone. And there's a part of your brain that just like 
implodes going, oh my God, it feels like you're on a soundstage and like, you know, old Hollywood and whatever. So it was, it you make was it pretty Sunset great. Sunset Boulevard then, or something. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Ready for your close up. But so it, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And just he's, yeah, he's everything you, you would think he is. He's awesome. I don't know what I would think he is. You know what I mean? He's one of those people I've, I've but read that's a, what quite I mean. a bit about he's him. He's everything yeah. that you think he'd be. Yeah, so if you're right. looking for odd and esoteric, you find it. You know, if you're looking for kind of just this master of film, you find it. If you're looking for kind of the man behind it, you find it. At least I did. And it's it's interesting because I, I watched a documentary. Um, it wasn't really a documentary about him. It was just sort of a documentary where they... I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but it, it, Criterion put it out, and it, it's it's a, an extended, basically, conversation with David Lynch, and I think it was in his home, if I remember correctly. And it, watching that, I kind of saw this sense of, like, you know, you talk about these people, you know, earlier you were talking about having all these other interests. It's like, David Lynch has so many interests. You know, he's a master filmmaker, of course, but he has so many interests. And it just kind of reinforces painter. for me what you were talking. Yeah, right. Um, and he's, but I also saw a hint of it in that interview that, that I was like, you know, one of the things that people ask you a lot when you work with someone well known is that it's, a, you know, the, usually people ask this that, that don't work in, in film and television because, because it's, I think it's sort of an interesting to people. It's an interest that's, that comes first to their mind is, are they nice? You know, so someone will say to me, oh, you worked mm. with so and so. Are they nice? And I'm like. You know, and it varies. Some people are, some people are, and sometimes you care that whether they are nice, and sometimes it doesn't even matter because that's not the thing you're trying to engage True. with anyway. But I was watching the, Lynch in this interview relating to different people. I was like, he seems really nice, you know, which some people probably wouldn't think because he's so heady. The and- nicest, the nicest, and he wore. And I actually asked him about it because he would wear the same, the same outfit, if that's what you can call it on a man, um, every day. He wore crisp white button down, buttoned all the way up, and then khakis. And I remember saying to him, um, because you you can joke with him. And you know, I think I think most people did, but I remember saying to him, when you go home, do you wash this every night or do you just have a closet full? I mean I already know the answer, but do you already have a do you have a closet full of crisp, perfectly pressed shirts and, you know, khaki like dungaree pants and and um and he said, no, it's actually just the same one from yesterday. And I was like, no, it's not. It's perfect. And he goes, no, I have I have the same. He goes, it's what I'm comfortable in, and I know it. And, yeah, I just have I have a lot of my favorites. And, um, yeah. Just doesn't want to spend any of that tremendous brain power on something like that. Just not something he yeah, wants to use. Yeah, you know, it it's – that's a, I never thought about it that way, but it's true. I remember, I remember someone telling – there was a story I heard about Einstein and how – he was so in his head and so, you know, his thoughts were so consuming. He forgot the mundane everyday things. He would forget to eat. He would forget to put on his pants. He would forget his notes, just get up and walk away. And so he had undergrads that were assigned to him to help him with those mundane daily tasks, such yeah, as eating and getting yeah. dressed because his brain was doing other things. So, yeah, that's a good that's It a is good a bit of a through line I've seen with 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 people that, that, that whose career is, you know, requires that much of their mind. Um, you know, I've noticed it with designers and people of that nature that they were, you know, for example, they were all black. And I think it is sort of something to do with that. The idea of, I don't want to have to spend any time in my day, in my morning or whatever, worrying about what I'm going to wear. And if it's the same thing every day, I've taken that out of the equation. Yeah. I mean, that does make sense. That does make sense. 
Steve Jobs would agree with you. If I do that, people would just be like, he's too fucking lazy to, to go out and buy clothes. <laughs> they won't think it's because I'm, I'm too cerebral. Yeah. So I'm curious to like to come back around a little bit to like, you know, so when you found out the show wasn't going to go, what was your what was that ride? What were you like? Oh, like oh, I'm, I'm sure you were disappointed. But yeah. like, do you remember like? Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember. Um, I remember waiting to find out. And I can't I actually can't remember if my manager called me first or David called. But I remember talking to both of them and I was just like, that, why? I kept expecting someone to say like April Fool's Day or something. I just, it made no sense to me um, because it was one of the biggest gets for that pilot season. It was, I mean, everybody wanted that pilot, um, not even knowing what it was, but because it was, it was, it was him. Well, and Twin Peaks was a landmark television series and David Lynch by this point, of course, is, you know. David Lynch. It's not like this is before he was. No, who he, he was. Is. He was. Yeah, yeah. He was entrenched in who he was. But it was, it was a devastating phone call because you're kind of like, wait a second, how could that possibly happen? Because as an actor, you know, you really never know when your next job is coming, and not just for survival or anything, but for for your mental health, for your creative health, for all of that. You know, just it's one of those things where when you do get something that you are passionate about, because there are plenty of jobs that you're not passionate about, and you know. You pass on a lot of those. Sometimes you do it for whatever reasons that you validate, you know, doing it for. But when it's something like this, for me, that I was so excited about it and so honored to be part of it, it did feel like that thing where you're kind of like, oh, wow, you know, this is it. This is the one that's going to stay on for five years. It's going to solidify, you know, what I want out of this field and um, make it easier for the next step. And, you know, it, it, it did feel very much of a win. And so when it didn't go, not only was it confusing as to how, how on earth could someone pass on him and this, but it was devastating too, because you're kind of like, oh, wow, this whole universe that I was about to get into, because you did know, you did know where your storyline was going. You knew other storylines and you were excited about it, exciting to, to live that and do it. And then all of a sudden it's just gone. And yeah, it, tremendously sad. And then you're kind of like, wow. And then then you're just one more ship back out in the sea, kind of going, okay, going back and auditioning, you know, for the next time. And and yeah, I, I think I've done like 10 pilots that haven't gotten picked up. So I don't want to say you get used to it, but you're kind of one of the, you kind of your brain goes to like, oh, yep, one more that didn't get picked up. Oh, well. So was, would you say that one was the most gutting? For sure. For sure. There was another one. That was definitely the most gutting. There was another one that they that we made um, based on L.A. Confidential that um, I was for sure was going to go. It was Kiefer Sutherland and um, Melissa George was in that also, and it and it it didn't go. And then there was another one based on the movie uh, The Player, and um, that was Patrick Dempsey. It was actually it was funny. It was Patrick Dempsey, Isaiah Washington, Jennifer Garner. Um, and it was it was the season before Grey's Anatomy, and it was a shoe in. Everyone was oh. like, "This is hundred percent getting picked up." And Isaiah and I played Patrick Dempsey. He was the studio head boss, and we played his assistants. Um, and it didn't get picked up. So I think all of those, I really thought, okay, now this one's getting picked up, and it didn't. And then you're yeah, like, well, now right. now now this one's getting picked up, and it didn't. So yeah, those those phone calls suck. <laughs> They do because I think it was the 
the showrunner Brian Fuller, I remember. I think it was Brian Fuller. He was talking about uh, he, 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 a show that I, I love called Hannibal. Um, and when Hannibal... Hannibal was always one of those shows that was on the bubble. Like, was it going to get to keep going? Was it, it had this very fierce following, but it wasn't a big following. But the people who loved it really loved it, and the critics loved it. So that then the studio and the network kept trying to figure out how to, what do we do with this because it's, it's not getting the numbers we want, but the people who love it really love it, and it's right. getting it was kind of bringing them a certain amount of you know kind of credibility because critics were like, this is masterpiece stuff. Every episode on on you know network television, but Fuller was like, you know, in the end though, there's this sort of mysterious kind of formula that that networks seem to work off of and he said and you it's just it's so evasive as to what it is that you sometimes wonder do they even fucking know what it is <laughs> like what is the decision making process in some of these on some of these shows because then you see these horrible shows sometimes that come out and you're like so they passed on these things and that's what they went with i, I find that I, I don't find know. It so I've never confusing. understood the logic i, I don't either and you know some i i was told one time by this uh director who created the show um, and he was so passionate about it and I, I got the part and, and I remember it didn't go and I, and then he went to create this other show that, that did stay on the air for like eight years. And I remember running into him and he's like, I just don't get it. Like the first show was so much better. And I was like, and I was so passionate about it because I almost did this second show as like a fuck you to be like, wait, you didn't want this. That was so you know, so good and so well thought of and so, you know, so perfectly constructed. I created this in like two days and then that got picked up. And and I think when I ran into him, it was like the third year it was on. And then I keep running into him, but it stayed on for like eight years. And um, I remember thinking about that and, and kind of going, yeah, I I don't know that there is a rhyme or reason for it. I know sometimes it's political. Sometimes they don't want a show to go based because they, they just don't want to work with certain people. And then sometimes I think it's a wing and a prayer. I mean, I clearly, clearly, I have no, I have no realm of understanding because I have um, all the pilots I've done have have, uh, have all not gotten picked up. So now, do you do you remember when you found out? And 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 I'm curious how you found out that that there was going to be released as a film, and you were just in it, you would be in it in in the future film version. Um, yeah, David called us and he, he called each of us and, you know, said, I have great news. I have great news. And he said, um, we sold the movie to Canal Plus and they're going to release it as a film. And, you know, and then we screened it and, um, because I had no idea like what ending he chose. Cause we were all in different versions of the endings, you know, and, and, um, I had no idea which direction it was going. So you kind of learn while you're watching it. Um, but yeah, he was super excited and he was like, I, you know, I told you guys I wasn't going to let it die. So it was great that he didn't. And it was great that he, he resuscitated it. Did it, did it give you a, a sort of a, a closure? Because at least people got to see something. At least it became something. And it became something big. It wasn't the thing you thought it would be, but people got to see Mulholland Drive. Yes, 100% gave closure. And I was so, you know, I really enjoyed everyone. I mean, the crew, David's crew is like almost a military with their respect. And, and you know, you, you, you Kevin, you've been on so many sets where, you know, you, you kind of look around and that crew member's doing this and this crew member's doing this. This one's complaining. This one's on their phone or whatever. And 
You just wish you could lasso them all up and be like, guys, if everyone just put their heart and soul in this, it will make it better, you know, but you can't because everyone has a different agenda. And on that one, it was crazy. I mean, David would say something and as the words were coming out of his mouth, like it was, it was being done. And, you know, you, you get, you're so fond of that reverence and that respect because you're like, oh, he deserves it and you're part of it. So it, it is this beautiful world to be a part of. So I was really happy that, that something happened for him because he worked so hard on it. And then, you know, in seeing the movie and everything, um, I was so happy for the girls, for Laura and for Naomi, you know, to have their, their time. And, you know, I was bummed that it, that we, that we couldn't see what the rest held because even if I wasn't part of it, I would want to see what David created, but it didn't work out that way. But I was really happy as far as closure, but I was, you know, yes, closure, but I was also really happy that, that something came of it because it was really fun making it and in, it deserved to be seen in, the, in that genre and in that world. I mean, I think for most actors, you, you know, you shoot a pilot, uh, it doesn't get picked up and you go, well, that's it. No one's ever going to see that. That's that. And that's not what happened here. And that's, pr- I, there's very, I mean, I'm, there's a few instances of that, but not many. Not many at all. And I think, you know, don't forget, this was before the the days of, you know, there's been how many how many shows have you known? I mean, you just talked about Hannibal, but where are shows on the bubble and it, you know, people already know it's not getting renewed and, and you know, people in the know are kind of already, it's not getting renewed. And then there's a huge internet push for yeah. Save Our Show and it becomes this whole thing, you know, sign this, do this, tweet this. And then the show goes, okay, fine, I got we we got to pick it back up if all these people are going to, you know, say they're going to watch it. And there's this huge thing. We got to do it. This was before any of that, you know, yeah, and, I don't think it would happen now because so, somebody else would have grabbed it. A, a streaming company. Somebody would yeah. have found a way to do oh, it. Oh my God. Now, yeah. well now, I mean, back then there were four networks and it was, it, right, you know, and yeah. everyone thought they knew best. And so it was kind of like, but yeah, now, now, geez, I mean, it's amazing what television has done. I mean, it television has become film. It's yeah. it's at least in my perspective, it's phenomenal. I mean, there's such good television on. Yeah. Now, I mean, David Lynch would have had a heyday with this. Yeah. It's a bummer, man. Yeah. I mean, I I loved Too when early he for did its time. when he did the uh, follow up season of of uh, Twin Peaks that he did, and I was like, oh great, yeah. Lynch is going to come back to TV for a bit and play with us on on this medium again because it's like, I mean, I'm always like that with his films. I always feel like. Lynch's films have this wonderful quality of that, like you feel like there's so much that happened before and after the story he decided to tell you, and I don't, I don't know if that makes yeah, sense, but glimpse. it's like, yeah, there's so many films you see and they feel like feels like this is the story that you're meant to be told. But with Lynch's movies, it's like you're just getting a slice of this world he's creating and he's only giving you like a taste. And I often find myself being like, I want to see more of this. I want more, and and, and I felt that with Mahal. Oh Drive. yeah, you can feel it in the fabric. Yeah, he's of the, giving, of the film. he's literally like peeling back the curtain for a second and giving you a peek. Yeah, and you want to be like, no, yeah. <laughs> I want to see the whole thing. My, my husband, I, I sh- when the first when the new season of Twin Peaks came out, I, I I put it on and he was watching it with me, and he hadn't seen the original series, and he hadn't seen any David Lynch movies, so we're watching the show, and then uh, all of a sudden he turns wow. to me about three quarters of the first episode, and he goes, "What the fuck is this about?" And I was like, 
mean? I was like, I should Welcome explain. Welcome to David Lynch. Yeah, I was like, I need to explain something to you about this filmmaker for a second. <laughs> because he just looked so just utterly bamboozled. It was just like, because if you don't know David Lynch and you just jump into to Twin Peaks, yeah, you're going to be like, what is this? <laughs> like... But it's, you know, oh I love gosh. that. I love that about his work. I think it's what makes him such a distinctive voice is like that, uh, you know, it's so hard to sort of pin down what he's doing. And that's so the magic of Lynch is, is, you know, you can't sort of just say, you know, people, when we were, when I was deciding whether, you know, to even really talk much about Mulholland Drive for the podcast, because this, this is a horror genre uh, focused podcast. And I was like, was Mulholland Drive a horror film? I was like, it's scary. It's, it's in the same way that you do that with so many David Lynch films, you go, well, this doesn't fit into one thing. And it's hard to do that with Lynch's work. And I think that's part of the beauty of, of the work of David Lynch. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, it's you wouldn't think of Mulholland Drive in the horror genre off the bat. But then once you do, you're like, oh, wait. Hmm. OK. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh. So in, in horror genre is all over the map. I mean, there's all kinds of of that. I mean. Even the ones we talked about, Pet Cemetery versus The Exorcist, they're completely different. Yeah. Well, horror is funny so, that yeah, way because people, you know, people will say to me, is Jurassic Park, is that a horror movie? Is, is you know, is, is, is this, or, it, it's, it's, sometimes it's difficult to pin down what defines a horror film. You know what I mean? If, is it just that it scares you? Does it have to have monsters? What makes it a horror movie? And I think, um, you know, there's entire books that are written about that. So I want to talk about the mummy and the armadillo. Now, it's not spelled and right. the armadillo. It's mummy and the armadillo. Yep. Which I A little love. southern in there. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you play uh, the character Billy, who's kind of like the sort of the straight character, at least the least batshit crazy character, I think, of, of this. Next to <laughs> maybe Claire Kramer's <laughs> character. Um, yes. But but it's a pretty it's a pretty wild cast of characters and your character is probably the least of the family uh the least insane um how did you get involved with this project this was your second project with jess cardoni is it cardoni or cardone cardone yeah cardone. joe okay. and um i always just know him as joe yeah because anytime i've heard yeah, people talk exactly. about him like my first introduction to his work was through it wasn't through you actually it was i'm trying to remember who it was it was someone i knew that knew joe and they were like, oh, have you ever seen any of Joe's films? And I had seen a movie he did called Shadow Zone, I think was the name of it, um, mm -hmm. which, with a company called Full Moon that I'm a fan. And Joe had worked with Charlie Band at Full Moon on a few different projects. But um, but this was your second film with, right? The first one was a movie called True Blue, which was, I think, like a crime, a crime drama kind of. Yeah, so I'll never, I mean, Joe is, I mean, he's, I said so many great things about David Lynch and they're all true, um, 100%. But Joe is, I think my, he's just my favorite. He's. He's amazing. I mean, he is through and through exactly who he is. So there's no airs. There's nothing. He's just, you know, such a straight shooter. And that's amazing as a director because I have done four films with him, actually. And um, and when I first met him. Yes. Yeah. When I first. True Blue. Mm -hmm. Mommy and the Armadillo. 8mm 2. Wicked Little Things. And then he was the writer and producer of Prom Night. Right. And I did. I got killed in Prom Night. Yeah. Um, so five films, but, yeah. but four real film, I mean, four yeah. where I was with him the whole time. Um, and I remember meeting right. him at true blue, um, going into audition and sitting with him and just thinking, God, I wish every meeting was this easy. You know, it's, it's, it's him. You get to sit and talk. 
there's a casting director, but it's, it just is, um, no bullshit. You know, you're just, you're, you're reading the part, you finish your read, you talk about it. He gives you notes, you make, you take the notes, you make the notes and you do it again. And it, it just, it felt to me, as far as auditions go, what acting should be. You, you know, it, to me, auditions are crazy because whether you're nervous or not, it, it doesn't represent the reality of a set at all. I mean, think about when you're on set, you do right. a take, you know, this compressor over here goes off. You have to cut the take. You have to go again. It can be the most emotional scene. The, there, I remember we had like six takes on one scene where a helicopter came, then it was this, then it was something, you know, and, and you have to just center yourself and go again, or you could be sucking and you get 10 takes to get it straight or you nail it on the first one. I mean, you, it is, it's a process. I mean, you look at Kubrick who makes you do like 96 takes of something because he wants to wear down everything that's going on in your head and every wall that you've built and get to like the bones of your emotion in character. But it's also human because it is the bones of you as an actor being like, I'm fucking exhausted. So there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's something, you know, so refreshing about going in an audition and, and, and really hearing what they want. And then, you know, you do your interpretation of it. You do your try. And it's one of those magic things that if it, which it did with Joe, if it works and it clicks, you know, we formed a lifelong friendship and, and, you know, I, I, it's, it's just amazing when it works out that way. Cause I remember I was doing a movie in Romania and, um, and the way we were trying to schedule these back to back, cause I had gotten both films and they were overlapping. And so it was one of those where they shot me out early on the film in Romania and then pushed me late on true blue. So I caught a, like a middle of the night flight from Romania and landed in Toronto and they lost all my luggage and all this kind of thing. But I was supposed to be on set like immediately. And so I went straight to set because I had to shoot a scene that night. But I had no voice because I think we shot, you know, 13 hours, then the flight and whatever. So I showed up to set and I, I literally had no voice. And they were like, oh, fuck. OK, well, we'll do ADR for this. But, you know, get in wardrobe, get in there, do the <laughs> scene. And I had this little it was like, yeah, I'm going there now. You know, this tiny little frog oh, voice. Bad? Oh, I, I literally had no oh, voice. Oh, man. And I remember apologizing um, to everybody and being like, I promise, just because it was on a Friday or a Saturday, and then we had Sunday off before we shot on Monday. And um, and I remember thinking like, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired. I'm I'm getting completely fired from this because I showed up with no voice and whatever. And I remember we shot it and we finished and – I got back to my room and they had all this like hot tea and honey and all this stuff delivered. And I remember, oh, going, okay, nice. well, I guess I'm not fired yet. <laughs> um, and then it came back. It came, I woke up the next morning and I had a voice and I was like, oh gosh, thank the Lord. Um, but then when we had our first full day of shooting, um, I remember we, we wrapped and Joe's assistant came over and said, um, if, you, if you don't mind, Joe would like to see you in his trailer. And I was like, okay, now I'm getting fired. Fuck. Um, and, um, and so I, I was so nervous because I was like, man, am I, am I not? Your whole it? process that day was when am I getting fired? I mean, literally, because you're still kind of in character. Like the other movie was was a little bit. It was only six actors and we were like shooting in this castle in Romania. And, you know, you're you're entrenched in that movie. And then you have one flight to get out of that 
into like this femme fatale role. And it was, you know, I was like, am I still, am I still in the other character? Am I, am I screwing this up? Like what is going on? And I knocked, I was so nervous. I knocked on the trailer and you know, come in. And I went in and there was, um, a, a bottle of gin and tonic and limes and whatever. And he didn't even look at me and he goes, um, my assistant told me that you like gin and tonics. So go ahead and pour yourself a drink. And we're going to talk about today. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. You know, I, I've never had gin in my life. Like I, I, I don't know where the assistant got that information. But oh, really? I, all in my head. I'm thinking <laughs> this, but I'm like, I'm so still worried that when we talk about the day, am I getting fired? And I've never felt that way before, yeah. but this was just all so crazy. And, and so I poured myself a gin and tonic and sat there and the day was phenomenal. He loved it. We were talking about the character and tomorrow and everything. And I, I found out that night that that is Joe's ritual. At the end of the day, he, you know, will have you or whoever come to the trailer, talk about the day, talk about tomorrow. And it's one drink because you're not going to screw up tomorrow. It's one drink. He has one martini with blue cheese olives. I'll never forget. And, uh, and you have your one drink and you kind of talk about what went right, what went wrong what tomorrow's going to be like. But I remember asking him that night saying, can I ask you a question? And I said, and he said, yeah. And I said, so I wasn't sure if I was coming in here and you were going to tell me that today sucked or whatever. And he goes, no, it was brilliant. It was great. It was exactly what I wanted. And I go, but you never said that. You never said the word great. You never said, I loved it. You never said anything. And he goes, I don't need to compliment you. If you're doing something wrong, believe me, I will tell you. But if you're doing what I want, I'll move on to the next scene. And I was like, uh, 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 I was like a deer in headlights. That was so foreign to me because so many sets pet you, you know, they're like, oh, that was phenomenal. Da, 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 da. And it makes you feel, you know, so great and everything. And he's doesn't do that at all. And it was a learning curve. And, and I love it because it, it, it just, you go faster and you, and you know, and we, we got each other's shorthand so well that by, by, you know, the second movie and the third movie and the fourth movie, I could just get a look from him. And I was like, yep, that sucks. I'll do it again. Okay. You know, or whatever. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah he's, he's phenomenal. And it, so when you did mommy and the armadillo, did he just, was it just an offer? He just said, do you want to do this? Yes. He sent me the script and he was like, I'd love for you to play this part, you know, read it and let me know what you think. And um, I read it and I was like, yeah, I'm in. I just, I love the world he creates. And I mean, talk about someone who is a true horror aficionado and just, I mean, it's, it's, it's how his brain works. It's all he wants to do. Everything that he wants to do has that aspect, even eight millimeter too, which, which wasn't a sequel to eight millimeter. We just, it was a Sony film and they had the title and they slapped it on it because they thought, they oh, would. we're going to get into that. Okay. Don't okay. you worry. <laughs> um, anyhow, that's here. <laughs> he still had, you know, he had elements of like, we talked about the different worlds of horror and that he just thinks that way. Yeah. So with mummy, I was like, yeah, I'm in. I mean, if he offered me anything, I would be in just because I want to take the ride with him. I trust him. It was originally a play, wasn't it? Yes. It was originally a play and um, he had gotten, he had gotten the rights to it and, and, and wrote the script and I think he was really interested in doing it because they built the set on on one stage, was one set. We shot everything in a room. And he was really fascinated with, um, you know, breakaway walls and doing that, but doing everything in one location. Um, 
that's not the way many films are done at all. I mean, I, the fewest percent. You go on 80 locations and you move around so much and you build and then break down and everything. So doing this in one location, I think he was, he. I remember him wanting to just build the angst and build and build and make this pressure cooker and and have it be like that. And so that was, that's what he did. Did you guys, you know, I'm thinking of it, since it was Regia play, did you guys have rehearsals? It yeah, seems like something did. like this would let itself to rehearse. You did. We did. Yeah. We had um, a week or two of rehearsals before we started and we had blocking and rehearsals and we really, it moved, it, it, it moved like a play. I mean, we shot it in, in order. And, and so when, when you feel something building, it was because it built. It was interesting as an actor because I had never shot anything, you know, in order of the story before. And, um, you know, yeah, how films goes, are almost can... never shot chronologically. Never. Like that's Ever. almost never done. Yeah. No, half the There's time a you couple shoot directors. page 78 first, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You hear about that all the time, you know? And I, like I was just talking to another actor who was telling me, you know, that having to come in and sort of that in the same day, having to do a scene that was like right near the end and then having to do a scene that was like toward the end of the beginning. He was like, and you have to sort of calibrate. That's part of the job, right? Is Where's my character going to be at then? And I got to make sure it lines up and you got to make all those choices in advance. And I think that's sort of the alchemy of being a film actor that maybe people who haven't, aren't as as aware of, you know what I mean? Because for me as a director, you see that with actors, you see that that's one of the harder parts of that job. Um, Because if you make a decision at the beginning of the show about how you're going to get to a certain point emotionally, you got to make sure you land there. Or you're in trouble. Oh my god! You're the filmmakers are. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's why when you watch films, sometimes you know, you kind of go, "Well, that sucked." Sometimes when when everyone wasn't on board with that, where you're not going, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" You're not. This is not. You're not confident here. You've lost all. You know, whatever the note is, you have to be there. And I think, as a film actor, it's it's one of the things that intrinsically you learn from from the get go and you just know because you know, or, or you're trained that way or whatever your path is. I think that's why so many people or people who choose to be method stay that stay in character the whole time. You know, even if you're shooting out of character and things like that, cause it helps them know where they're supposed to be. Cause not only are you coming out of character and being your own self on your own life, when you go back to the hotel room and make your phone calls and do whatever, be with your family or whatever it is, but then you know, you're going back into character and then remembering that you're on page 48 in the morning and page 79 in, you know, in the evening because it's the same location and you're only going to shoot there once. So yeah, that, that, that part's, you just have to plan it, you know, know where you are. I was sort of looking up some stuff about the film and, and, and it's a movie that like, it hasn't been put on Blu-ray and stuff like that. So the only way I could see it was to, to get the DVD. And, uh, but did you know, actually in some territories, this movie was released as, and I'm not I'm not kidding. This is the actual title that this movie's put under. The Scare Hole. I I, I don't think I knew that. Wow. <laughs> okay. The Scare Hole. God, that, that sounds like a title for hunger, not um this one. That's interesting. Another person that, that this project uh was I don't know if it was your first, but it's certainly early on, uh, Mr. Jonathan Sheck, who you worked with subsequently on many different projects and who's sort of you know, uh, in my mind, how I when I started discovering your work as an actor, it was often working opposite John Shack, who who uh, who who you introduced me to at a later point, and and, and is a, a wonderful guy and uh, and a wonderful actor. But I is this was that your first project together, Mommy and yes. Amadillo? Yes, that was okay. our first project together, and um, 
he's an you know he's an amazing actor and such a good guy and just talk about somebody who it like he loves being an actor and he he has he finds such art in it and um and really pours himself into it he and he's just such a good guy I'm a big fan if you can't tell <laughs> um but yes I think <laughs> we made a joke that I've played his wife I've played his girlfriend um he's killed me he's tried to kill me I think the only thing I haven't played is like his mother or daughter but that could have been in there somewhere too we've we, we're just we're going around the family tree that's <laughs> our goal here yeah watching all your films together because most of them are, are quite a few of them at least for genre projects um you know chemistry is an, a, 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 a difficult thing and it can be hard to nail down why two people have chemistry because sometimes you will get two people who really like each other and yet they still don't have chemistry. You know, I've seen chemistry between actors who didn't really like each other. So it's interesting to me to see that it's, it's undeniable though, that you and Shaq have chemistry. Is that something that you guys are aware of when you work together? Or is that something, you know, someone like Joe has to kind of enforce one in the casting of, of you two together? Like, how does that how does that work for you guys? Are you aware of that chemistry? I mean, you're definitely at least, I mean, we are definitely aware of it because we really like each other as humans. Um, but like you said, you cannot like each other as humans and have phenomenal chemistry or you can love each other as humans and not have chemistry at all. Um, but I've always thought, and this is just me, I've always thought that, you know, no scene is going to make sense if there's not chemistry. And that's with anything. I mean, that's Hannibal Lecter before he wants to eat somebody. If there's not chemistry there, you would go, why would you want to eat that person? I mean, there has to be something that's magnetic, that's driving you, and it's why people want to watch. Um, so I think as, a, as just your soul self as an actor, you have to create that chemistry. And, and it's almost like, a, like something that you're, you're putting out as an invitation. And then you just cross your fingers and hope that the actor across from you feels the same way. Um, and I've definitely worked with people where they don't and, and you want it so bad, even if you don't like them as a person, I, I did a film where I had zero chemistry with my love interest in it. And, you know, I dig him as a person and stuff like that, but it was, he, that invitation never came, you know, it was just, it wasn't there. And it drove me crazy because I, I, you know, had talks with him and I was like, you got, you know, and, and he had his own chemistry for sure. I mean, he's very charismatic and he's, you know, all of those things, but it just didn't happen. And it's, it's super frustrating. So I think sometimes it's just like with Jonathan, it was just organically there because I think he wants it to work. I want it to work. And I, I love him as a person. I respect him as an actor. He works really hard as an actor. He wants to figure out why and when and how, and you can't help but respect that, you know? So chemistry is a, crazy thing. I mean, I have a friend who did a huge blockbuster movie and she hated the guy that she did it with. And you can tell, you know, so I think it's one of those things where you kind of have to say to yourself, I don't want anybody to tell. Yeah. I don't want anybody. So I'm going to try so hard to put out this chemistry and just hope that maybe it gets met somewhere. Um, I mean, those have been my experiences, Yeah, but I got lucky with Jonathan. He's, he's easy. He's so easy. And I think that's why we kept working together because it's, you know, I know he'll show up. He knows I'll show up. He will know his job. I will know my job. And the rest is play, right? I mean, the, I think that the whole cast of Mummy and the Armadillo is 
pretty standout. You, you know, uh, Brad Renfro, Wade Williams, Busy Phillips, um, Betty Buckley's really brilliant actress. Phenomenal. But, yeah. yeah, been in so many wonderful things. What was sort of the experience like working with the cast? Because for you on that, it was sort of interesting to watch. It was sort of this revolving door almost for you of, of scenes. Right? People, you'd stay, and someone would come in. You'd do some scenes with them. Then they'd leave, and then the next person or people would come in. You'd do some scenes. That must have been interesting for you because that's not usually how it is, right? No, no. You're usually with your people, and then cuts away and then people are with their people. Um, it was, it was fantastic for me because it's, it's kind of like a master lesson in acting and technique. You know I mean? Betty had her way of getting into character totally different from Brad, um, from busy, you know, and, and it's, and I, I, I've worked with, I'm not method and I've worked with plenty of people that are, and you just kind of give them space and respect them because it is their way of getting there. You know, acting is such a strange thing. You're putting on other people's lives, but you're doing it for repeated takes. You're doing it for wide shots, for close-ups, for mess-ups, for all that stuff. And you want to make sure that that your performance and, and the scene is as strong as you can make it. So, you know, it's it really is a dance. And so in that in that movie, it was so much fun to kind of see how everyone worked and to kind of get the brevity here or the intensity here. And I mean, I was grateful to be part of it to kind of see, cause it was, I was kind of like the in the middle and then everyone else got to be the blips um, of the heart monitor. So it was, it was a really great time to watch everybody and, and see what they did and, and, you know, and to make the movie and to see how Joe handled it and, and everything. So it was a great experience. I loved making that movie. I kind of want to highlight just because uh, he's no longer with us. Uh, Brad Renfro's wonderful work in the film. He's really great in it. Um, and he was a really wonderful actor. Can you talk a little bit working with Brad on the project? Yeah, man, that breaks my heart. Um, Brad and I became really, really close. Um, obviously met on that movie. And then he's such an interesting person. And, you know, you you see, like I said before, I think actors are, you know, we're just one big circus of kind of, traveling gypsies or freaks or whatever. Cause you, you, as an actor, you, you don't want to fit in. You want to, to, to kind of live in your own little world and you want to be, you know, the person over here and not in this big group. At least that's how I feel actors are because it's not conventional as a life. Um, and Brad, you know, Brad never sought it out. Brad was discovered when he was really young and he, did not have a great home life at all. And, and he didn't have that structure. We talked a lot about that because I, I came from a really safe, um, structured, wholesome kind of family. And he was the opposite. And he always said, how does it feel? How does it feel to, to, to have that safety and to have that strength? And you know, it's all I've ever known. So I, I was kind of like, yeah, I mean, it feels, it feels good, but, but, you know, let's make sure you have that and, and kind of thing. And, you know, he would talk about how he didn't come from that and how, you know, he found that in, in, I mean, I, I feel bad talking about his, his stuff because it's his stuff, but the beauty of him was he was really open about everything. And, you know, he had his problems with addiction. Um, and I think he found solace in that it made him feel safe. And that's the tragedy in it because he, it was so brilliant such a beautiful soul and um, had so much to give every human being. He had this house in Venice and I would go over there a lot and we would, we'd go to the grocery store and make dinners and things. And, 
you know, I'd go in and one of the bedrooms he had given to this homeless man that he had met in Venice. And he just said, you know, I believe his name was William. I could be getting that wrong, but he said, you know, he's had a hard go. He's, you know, he doesn't have a place to sleep. And I just kind of want to help him for a while to get back on his feet and stuff. And I, I thought to myself, like, it's phenomenal because he wasn't scared. He wasn't scared what William would take or steal or hurt him or anything. He just believed in his humanity and he wanted to help him. And he kind of had a few of those people um, around him that he would just help and help and help. And I think that that was him kind of forming his own family. And he, I mean, I cannot say enough good things about that guy. He, he was an amazing actor. He just had the natural gift and he had no qualms. I mean, he could go from one to a hundred without blinking. And, um, and I think he, he led a sporadic life and it, you know, I don't, I don't, think he wanted to go, but I think he had a lot of pain. So I have, um, a tremendous love for, for Brad Renfro and a tremendous sadness. Cause I would love to see what he was doing right now. He's one of those actors where I see him and he comes up in things, uh, and he did lots of great work and I see him and stuff and it's sort of, I'll perk up and think, Oh, oh yeah, something special, something great's going to happen. Cause he just, he had that. Uh, yeah. I mean, go back and watch the client and you just kind of go, what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, such He's, an alive actor, yeah. He had that almost like a Brando kind of the turmoil of the, you know, all that's there and we know about that part of him, but he also had that sensitivity and that that gentle side of, you know, someone like a Brando or a James Dean or whatever, those actors that had brought that great, I you know, totally strife with, with that gentleness. He wasn't yeah. like a thinking actor. Like he didn't, he just went. You know, it wasn't like, and I loved that about him as an actor because he he just, it was carnal and that's cool to watch. It wasn't his process. It was just him. He no, just did it. No, he yeah. would think about it. He would decide how he wanted to do it and it would just come out. Okay. So now we're going to move on to 2005, eight millimeter two. So you play the character of Tish, uh, who's the fiance of the main character, who's an, like an American diplomat. Um, now, it's important, of course, for people to understand that 8mm 2, which has nothing to do with 8mm <laughs> 1, um, the, uh, which was directed by Joel Schumacher, and Nicolas Cage is the star of that film, isn't he? Am I, am I mm -hmm. right about that? I haven't seen it in yes. so long. Yes, he is. That's right. Um, and Joaquin Phoenix is in it. Um, it has nothing to do with this movie at all. Uh, this movie was shot under the title The Velvet Side of Hell. Um is that correct? Is, that is correct. Steer me wrong again. Sweet. No, we, we shot um, it. That was the name. Everything. And then Sony, when they picked it up for distribution, for whatever fucking bizarre reason they came up with, decided, <laughs> I mean, obviously they had the rights to the first film, but decided to slap that on it. Now, that kind of stuff happened a lot more in the late 90s and early 1000s because studios would have certain things in their catalog and think, well, it has a better shot if it's recognizable somehow. This is one of those ones to me that's particularly odd, though, because all it did was set up this movie for people to go, what the fuck? Um, so for you, like, as, as, you know, one of the stars of the film, I mean, it's you and Sheck's movie. It's all about you, too. When the movie got slapped with that title, what was your reaction to that? Uh, befuddlement. I mean, it, we shot this movie... We went on this ride and then, you know, it was getting released. It was, we were told it was going to be released under that title and we were completely perplexed. We were like, why, how, what? And the only answer, we got kind of two answers from the studio and it was, you know, one, that they, 
they had made um, the original eight, eight millimeter and they had the rights to the sequel. And so within their line of thinking, it led to their second reason, which is eight millimeter was kind of all about a snuff film. And it was, it was about kind of hidden film and the idea of being filmed when you don't know it and what the repercussions are. And then their line of thinking A to B went, well, this film is about being filmed when you don't know you're being filmed and what you do about it and the repercussions after the fact. So one and one plus together made two in their mind, even though the films had nothing to do with each other. The 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 subject matter tan- tangentially brushed up against each other at one point. Um, so barely. we were like, and so bar- barely, I mean, barely, you know what I mean? it's, it was a stretch yeah. for sure. It's a real stretch. <laughs> yeah. 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 No question. But yeah, it was, it was, um, we were really bummed cause we were like, wow, this film can stand on its own. You know, it's, it's a, it's definitely a genre film and it's, you know, it, it goes down the rabbit hole of that world. They, the characters go down the rabbit hole of that world, but and that's kind of why it wanted to be kind of like it was our personal hell. It was the velvet side of it. And it just made so much sense. But titling it, that made no sense. But there's nothing you can do. That's the that's also the plight of an actor where you kind of go. They could have called it happy birthday and we would be like, all right. <laughs> what did Joe have to say about it? Uh, he was mad, but he was he's also um, one of the most even keeled people I've ever met in my life. and you know, he fought his fight to keep it velvet side of hell. And, you know, at the end of the day, he was like, the film is the film. And hopefully the people that would have been turned on by our title will still be in that world. will find it. And the people who are expecting the first film, hopefully will discover ours. You know, he's, he's, he's always so genteel about everything. And, you know, I guess unruffled our feathers a bit because we didn't really understand it. He was like, guys, it's happening. So but Gotta he, roll with it. of course, wanted to keep it. Yeah, because he wrote the film, so he yeah. wanted to keep it his title. Do you think that having the title eight millimeter two hurt the movie? Um, that's interesting. the op The optimistic part of myself would love to say no, because people who sought out the sequel, you know, discovered this film. But then the pessimistic side of me would go, no, because they, they went in there looking for a sequel to a Nick Cage, Joaquin Phoenix film that was about snuff film and had that Joel Schumacher type thing. And then it was us. And, you know, maybe they were let down and turned it off and didn't give us a chance. I don't know. You know, I think as an actor, sometimes you have to let it go because you move on to the next one and there, there literally is nothing you can do. Um, so it could have it could have hurt it for sure because the people who are looking for a standalone interesting movie and the title intrigues them in some weird way then never discovered it at all so it probably did right i mean i know critics certainly tore it up for that it was like that was something they gave the critics you know they they got the knives out over that it was like i was reading yeah you know it's funny you it. It say like, that, that was critics, the first I, thing they all went after yeah, it has nothing to do with it. I learned a long time ago, I I, lit, I do not ever read anything that has to do with critics. I think I did a film early on and I remember being so excited because the first few reviews were so good and then there was a bad one and it devastated me. And 
uh, they there was a whole thing about how they one person said or it wasn't even a critic it was like a you know comment or something like that and it was someone who clearly had <laughs> wanted or had a background in the medical field and talked about um that I had a a, a cleft palate repaired and I literally asked my mom, I go, mom, did I have a cleft palate repair? Because I don't, I don't think I ever had a, and she was like, what are you talking about? And I go, well, this person said they can tell. <laughs> and she was like, you're out of your skull, Lori. Like, no, you didn't. And, you know, part of me was like, well, you feel bad for everyone who who did have that happen and you don't want to say anything, you know, whatever. But then I was like, wait, pull yourself out of this right now, Lori. Stop reading anything. Whether someone thinks you're great or they think you suck or they are talking about parts of your body that you didn't know about, whatever it is, just back off, do your work and move along. And that was my lesson. Never listening to critics. I saw it when it first came out and I admired it. I thought it was, um, I thought it was a very strong film. And I think I, I, I still, I think it's, I think, I do think the title eight millimeter two did kind of hurt it because I think, I don't even think thematically it shares anything in common with that, with that first film. Um, so mm -hmm. that's why to me, I think it's a disservice because I think that uh, it it prepares you for something that that isn't what it is, and I think that might have been something that upset people that that uh, that, that saw it. Is they're like, oh, this is this is a whole other thing, but your expectations have been created because of that title. Um, I but think when you right. can watch it for what it is, and and, and what it is, a completely different animal. What it is to me is a kind of film that we don't see a lot of anymore, which is. You know, if you look into the 80s, 90s, early thousands, there was these movies just for adults. They weren't for teenagers. They weren't for kids. And they were sort of sexual thrillers. So we're talking Adrian Lynn films, Fatal Attraction, mm -hmm. you know, Basic, Basic Instinct, Instinct. Uh, The Gigolo, the, the Paul Schrader movie, this kind of stuff. They don't make those movies really anymore. Something changed in appetite in audiences. I don't know what it is. Do you see some of that kind of work on TV, I think? On, on the streaming services and things like that. But I don't remember the last yeah. time I saw a theatrical film like that. Um, I don't know if movies for adults even like that play in theaters anymore, and if they do, they seem to fail. But why do you think that is? Why do you think that movies, you know, of that of that ilk, which it, which 8mm2 very much is, why do you think that those very aren't much. around anymore? Um, that's interesting. You know, I think because... Maybe when films like that were around, there was such a, a a chasm of difference between what what kids could watch and adults could watch, and now everything's available. You know, you can turn on your phone, you can turn on the internet, you can you can watch anything anywhere. You know, you turn around for one second, and you know, like even as a parent, and if if you're not watching what your kids watching, they could stumble on something they're not supposed to. So maybe it was something that was um, back then such a luxury of you know, the kids are, a, sorry, the kids are asleep or, you know, it's our time and you can watch something that's scintillating and has that, that feel to it. You know, maybe, maybe it stopped. I don't know, because you're right. It doesn't really feel like, I mean, there are kind of every now and then a film that comes out like that, that like, oh, wow. But, but not a lot, not a lot. Like Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct and you know, some of the films we were just talking those were big hit films that played theatrically that were that clobbered the box office that got you know that that it became part of sort of a of a of a, a sort of milestones of, of their time of, of the culture and you know it's weird to me though that that sort of a subgenre like that 
has almost kind of faded into the background and 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 I feel like nobody really noticed that it happened until it was already there. You know what I mean? I have to be honest with you until you just broached that question. I, I didn't realize that, but it's true. Like when, when, I mean, cause you're right with basic instinct and I mean, I, that movie was huge and fatal attraction, huge wild things. You, you remember that film? That. that was a big hit film. That was, yes. <laughs> yeah. Same thing. And it's, it's interesting. There aren't so many of that every now and then there's one that comes up and it's, you know, I covet my neighbor's wife and I killed my neighbor to get her, that kind of, every now and then you, there will be one that comes up like that, but there's not. And those ones, right. I mean, those ones that you're talking about too, like that kind of thing that you're talking those are not usually made by serious filmmakers. I find a lot of those types of films now. They're, they're not, you know, the movies we're talking about were made by people like Adrian Lynn and John McNaughton and people yeah. like the Paul Verhoeven, like, you know, when you, well, someone debated Paul Verhoeven is a serious filmmaker, but he's a wonderful filmmaker. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of he the movies you're talking about does, are kind yeah. of big budget lifetime movies almost. You know what I mean? These ones where it's like, it's always like someone had an affair and then someone tries yeah. to kill someone. And it's, for, it's so formulaic. Yeah. But movies like Un, um, Unfaithful. You remember that film with Diane Lane? and um, Yeah, I was Richard just going to say the yeah. Diane Lane film. Yeah, that was such a beautifully crafted, you know, oh, rich. It was beautiful. Rich character work. It was that. a film. Yeah. It yeah. was a film. I mean, it was. I mean, I remember her on the train and. It was a film. Yeah, it's. It, I don't. That's that's interesting because you're right. There's not. I mean, I feel like when you say an adult film, films for adults, has now gone into. It has a lot of violence or a lot of cursing. Yeah. Because I'm just thinking in my own life when when my husband and I want to watch something, you know, and the kids they've gone to bed and they come in and we're like, no, 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 we're watching an adult movie, and it's like it's yeah, it sounds like we're sitting there watching porn, and it's it's yeah. like no, we're just watching Yellowstone. Get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah. It's it has turned into something different. I can't I cannot remember the last film that I have seen that would fall into the category we're talking about. That's interesting. Yeah, it's um, Ben Affleck um, and uh, I can't how you pronounce her name Anna Darmus. I think is that how you pronounce her name? One for guys. Oh yeah, yeah wonderful yeah. actress. Um, they just did one for Netflix. Adrian Lin directed it. Mm-hmm. Nobody watched it. I just watched it, and I thought to myself, "Wow, I haven't seen a movie like this in a long time," and just you know. It was, no one watched it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, I, I, I haven't seen it. I had either, never heard of but, it, but I heard um, from a few people who did that they were like they they liked it and they said you know they don't make those movies anymore and that was sort of then when I was watching Eight mm-hmm. Millimeter Two I, that started to click into place I was like that's because they don't really make them anymore and I and I started thinking about that so, no yeah yeah I don't know if it has something to do with you know, the superhero mm-hmm. thing kind of taking over the film industry in the way it has and not leaving a ton of room because uh, everybody now is, in many ways is trying to ape that. It, you know, the, the blockbuster movie thing doesn't... Movies now that get into the theaters and get a big push are rated PG. If they're rated R, they're like historical epics yeah. and stuff. So there's not a lot of character-driven work in movies. Yeah. What if Basic Instinct came out today? You know what I mean? Like, it's it's... That's a ponderous thought because if it did... It'd be a did, Hulu original is what it would be. I know. That's what's so crazy about... I, I, I do feel like, you know, all of our streaming services and everything, as much as I love them, it has killed the cinematic experience, no question. I can't tell you the last time I went to a movie. And I was the person who would go and see three movies a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, so, I the, the, the movie is... Theaters are my sort of my temple, but... 
they're not it's not yeah what it was it's just it's you know I mean, that's a whole episode on that shit but anyway um, that's a whole other episode yeah <laughs> um you know when i was watching the film and once again you're you're working with with Shaq, and he's uh, you guys play uh, a husband and wife in it um and of course the film has a lot of sexuality in it um so when you got the script, were you was there, did you have any you know were you kind of prepared for that? Had Joe sort of said there's a lot there's a lot of sexuality to this piece, or did you have any reservations? Yes, I, I guess I, is the question. Like you got it, were you like oh you know like how did that sort of land? <laughs> yes and yes. Um, he had prepared me and said this is you know it's a sexual thriller. Um, it's it's it delves into this whole world. It's erotic and it, it delves into the whole world of porn and all these, and you're just like, all these words are like, Oh shit. Oh my God. <laughs> I have a father. He has <laughs> golf buddies. Like, Oh no. Um, but because I felt so safe with Joe and John, I knew I probably would do the too, movie. right? I, well, originally, originally just Joe, when okay. he talked to me about it. Got and it. I, I think he already knew he wanted Jonathan and he was separately talking to Jonathan and then he told us that it was each other. And then we were like, oh, okay. Okay, great. Um, so I felt safe with Joe as a filmmaker because I knew no matter what I said, he would listen. And then, so that's one side of it because as a filmmaker, you know, the director can screw you. You can talk till you're blue in the face about how something should be done. And then on the day it's not, and then this has happened to me. And then on the day it's not done that way. And then they just kind of go, Hey, don't worry about it. Just do this. Just do this. We're, we're running low on time and we're going to lose this location. Just, just real quick, do this. And you're kind of like, mm, no. And I have girlfriends who have had that exact same thing happen and just got flustered and nervous in the moment and said, fine. And they did their topless scene or whatever. And they, to this day, regret it. And it became, even if in, it became kind of something that was really talked about in the movie. They didn't want to do it. And even if it helped their career or whatever, they given time and calmness, they would have said no, but they got talked into it. So I, I knew that wouldn't happen with Joe because we had such a rapport that I would say no. And if he didn't listen, there wouldn't be a forceful thing. Cause we disagreed about a lot of things on it, but we found a way to get around it and make ourselves comfortable and then having it be Jonathan, I was completely safe. I, I mean, completely safe. So I didn't, I was not, I didn't have one ounce of worry with him. Um, meaning not, not feeling unsafe with him, just meaning that I was protected in, that if I was feeling insecure about something in the scene, um, you know, too many people over here to this, you know, he would be the enforcer of, closed sets, everyone all, you know, and I was saying it too, but just, he would protect you that way as would Joe. So all the way around it was safe. And so you, you had the feeling that we knew exactly where the camera was. We knew what they were filming. We knew what their, what Joe's take on what he wanted was. And, you know, and Jonathan, and I choreographed where his arm would be, how his body would be, what this was, what that was which is crazy because I know everyone has heard this a billion times, but sex scenes are the least sexy thing you've ever done. Film and television is industry has really changed now. You know, you have like intimacy coordinators and there's so much awareness around, you know, what, what has gone on in the past in, 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 you know, on some productions. Um, had you had any bad experiences like that, you know, that, that, that might've made you wary for, for, before you did this project? You know, I think I went into it, um, so in my head and, and, and knowing to protect myself so much, my lawyer had done, um, a lot of the nudity writers for 
um, a lot bigger actresses in a lot bigger movies. And, you know, he was emphatic about using the same writers and stuff. So, I mean, it, it is so specific. It gets down to, you know, each scene, each shot, you can show, you know, one quarter of the nipple from one angle. And it, it is, it, it, it literally is a drafted law document that if at any point in time you feel like they're usurping it, you can go, I'm just going to get on the phone with my lawyer real quick. Cause you guys are screwing this up and I don't feel safe. And I had no problem saying that. And, you know, I angered a couple directors with that shit, but they shouldn't have pulled it. You know, don't hire me. You knew what I was comfortable with. And there were other people who would be comfortable with so much more. It just, I'm not your girl for that. So I think being able to know who you are and what you will give to that film and that role. And what's, I mean, my, my take on everything has always been, you know, is it necessitated? Does it push the story forward or is it gratuitous? And if it's gratuitous, again, I'm not your girl, but if it pushes the story forward and it makes sense and it, and it, it fuels it, you know, then, then, then we can talk. It's a juicy, it's a, it's a great character. Like she has a lot going on. She has an inner life and she has layers and she's not like, like a, a likable, sweet, innocent character, but she's not, a, you know, a bitch or a bad guy either. She's, she's like a, she's a person. Yeah. And it's so, you know, and especially in sort of genre films, that's not always the case. Um, was that part of the appeal? You know, like I, I know most actors when they're approached with projects that, you know, that require things like nudity and sex, that's, I don't know many actors that get excited about that. So it has to be for a lot of the actors I know. It's like you better be the part has to give me something here because I, I got to do that stuff. Like you said, it's not really that much fun to do for you when you got this script where you're like, OK, like this is a great part. So this other stuff will be fine. Yeah, 100 percent. And I think that falls into the category of of when you did have the intimate moments, it did drive the story forward because you needed to believe in their marriage. You needed to believe in their commitment and their love. And, you know, when you are in that relationship. All, all of the things because you, know, you are trying to create reality it's an alternate reality obviously but you are trying to create that so people believe what they're watching and they get lost into your world so I think in that you know when I read it it wasn't just like you know scene 12b girl runs in with her tits out and you know whatever I mean it's it's, it's so yeah, layered yeah, yeah. and and being that it was Joe you know I think he writes so layered and he writes for for women so well, because he has that sensitivity of really loving women and loving, I mean, he's a fan of women. And so, and he has a beautiful marriage to a beautiful woman and she's phenomenal and she was an actress. And so I think he understands all of that very well. And he wants it to feel right. And, um, you know, in, this is interesting because when we were shooting that movie, there was a scene where I felt I felt these chasms of kind of the haves and has nots in the sense of, you know, a lot of times when women have to get into the, that world, it's not by choice. You know, when they're when they're not in the acting world, when they're in the sex trade world and whatever, they don't choose it. it it's because it's a commodity and they have it. <laughs> I love you that know? you just clarified that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not actors. <laughs> not, not actors. We're, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but um, but it's, <laughs> there could be crossover. Yeah, yeah there's some crossover. Um, but when we shot in Budapest and in Hungary and, um, a lot of the women that they brought on to the film were real 
you know, in their world and everything that they were, they, they, I never asked why, what, who, whatever, but they were very comfortable being nude on film. And I remember shooting scenes where, um, we would walk in, Jonathan and I would walk in fully clothed and all these women were not. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I wonder if they hate me (laughs) because why does this girl get to keep her clothes on and our kits are off kind of thing. But I got to talk to some of them and, and, and whatever. And they were like, no, it's fine. This is just our world. We're fine with it. And, and I was like, okay. And at one of the scenes, um, I'll never forget somebody. And we never found out who or what, I think they found out who, and they fired him, but we weren't told, but there was a scene where, you know, there was a photographer in this, in the scene shooting these girls and it would become, you know, for something on the internet or something. And they were so good on set with protocol and everything. No cameras could have, S, you know, the SD cards. There were no visitors on set. It was a closed set. They were so perfect and so respectful. But at one point, because after each take, they would check the cameras and make sure, you know, whatever. And they found an SD card in one of the cameras. And the whole thing shut down. And, you know, Joe was furious. The props were furious. And and I they did find out who it was. It was, you know, somebody. And they fired him and you know, crushed the SD card and whatever, just to protect, you know, obviously the set and it, but also to protect those girls. And, and so it is interesting as an actor, what you wind through and what you see that, that wouldn't be on your plate. Um, so it is scary. It is scary. But I think if you have the right people around you that will protect you, I mean, they found out immediately and handled it immediately. And, and that made you feel better because you're like, wait, you know, I shot a scene, <laughs> hold on. I have more scenes to shoot. So I think just making sure you yeah. feel safe. And then, so that that's on the physical part. And then on the mental part, having a script that has all those layers and a character that, that is, um, that goes through everything as an actor, it warrants everything else. You want to do it. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I was talking to, um, a friend of mine about, about, you know, what we were talking about earlier is sort of this, this, this sort of subgenre of sort of sexual erotic thrillers kind of and and uh he said to me is it a thing that like where is as people become to um you know uh, sort of is it is it not cool now yeah. to have sex yeah. in movies you know what i mean is like is that not cool anymore is it is it, are you a like a pervert if you think sexuality in films is titillating or sexy and i was like gee i sure hope not because i always think that like I'm not that way. So I think, you know, I, I, I think it's fine to have sexuality films. It's it, film's job is to illuminate all different facets of life and our realities and who we are as people and how we relate. To, I mean, that's one of the jobs of one of the many jobs of filmmaking. And part of the way, a huge way that people relate to each other is through sex and sexuality. I think we have to be able to talk about that in movies. And if we're not, that sort of freaks me out because that's censorship. That's, that means we've really kind of gotten pretty wimpy. You know, it's funny. I thought you were going to say when you started this, I thought you were going to say, have we become conditioned to a point where it's everywhere now because we have the Internet and, you know, you can you when I was growing up, I mean, if you wanted to see anatomy, you had to go to Encyclopedia Britannica. You know what I mean? That was it. And now you can I mean, you can find anything. And so I think there is this thing where it's not as as salacious and it's not as exciting because it is everywhere. So when you're watching a film that that has that in it, you've seen it a hundred times. So is it not that exciting? And I, I will agree to your same end where that's sad because the whole idea of a film is to take you on a journey. And when you find it on the internet or you find it wherever you find it, it's not a journey. 
you know, it's a moment. And no, that's definitely true. Yeah. Wow. And so there is this weird cross section of like what you're talking about, the overexposure of sex and nudity because of the Internet. But then in, in mainstream culture, the complete prudish stripping of can't have sexiness in movies anymore. And it just it's a weird thing. And it all feels to me like kind of a move backwards, because particularly in North America, it's different in Europe, yeah. particularly in North America. You could chop people's fucking heads off all you want. But if people have sex, then you're getting slapped with a hard R. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, no, I mean, and that, I just that, think it's a weird thing. That's funny, because I, I know we dealt with that on, on this movie. We dealt with the rating. You know, we had to, 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 to do things to get the rating that was the most accessible to getting the, as many viewers. And yeah, that is that is interesting. Um, but it's it is sad because I think everything should have a little bit of sexy in there, whether it's I mean, you could have beautiful mind and it's sexy because of 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 how they're portraying it and the relationship between the husband and wife. And then he himself just with what's happening, it can be everywhere, but that there is something that is magnetic about that and and literally a definition of the world, the word attractive, right? you go back and watch something like Mulholland Drive and I'm like, those scenes are so sexy and they are classy and they are elegant and they are beautiful and they are connective and they're so achingly sexy. They're not exploitive. And because David Lynch didn't make them to just no. for some person to get their rocks off. They're part of the fabric of the story he's telling. And if we can't do that in movies anymore, I want to know why not. I want to know why that can't be a part of making a story for grownups. Because yeah. I just, yeah, like I said, I mean, you see it on Netflix for sure. It's still there, but it's not in the theaters. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think I think film becomes cyclical. And, you know, if if it's the downside right now because of Me Too. Well, I mean, Me Too kind of needed to happen, though. I mean, not kind of. It needed to happen. I mean, it really did. There was, you know, you're in the business and you, and you, you know, you you're not part of that because I've worked with you and. But man, so many people are. I mean, all of the people that that got oh, yeah. coughed up to that, I have stories with. And, you know, I never went forward with saying anything because I wouldn't have changed anything. It would have just it would have just been um if it was up to me to take someone down, you know, hopefully I would have the strength to do that. But I was just another number with with these people. But um it's. I mean, we speak of Sheck with total strength. He did that, you know. Sheck, Sheck told a pretty hard Very story so. to tell that needed to be told. And Very much so. I was so just. It's such courage. I was so you know. I was very just when when I read that Sheck was telling that story. I was so proud of him's not right i guess i was humbled to to know what you know what's such just john's such a strong man for doing that that's you 100%. know it takes a lot takes a lot i mean he has he has so much character and i don't i think he was not willing to mitigate that any longer you know with with but everyone who came out and had that had the strength to do that because it, it really is you know i did i did a film um wicked little things and the the girl who played my daughter in it when we shot the movie she was 10 10 or 11 and her mom was everywhere with us the greatest mom the greatest daughter the greatest family um and i thought a lot about her, her name's chloe moretz and i thought a lot about her you know then and over the years and and when me too happened and i thought to myself i'm so happy that she gets to come of age in a time where people are actually watching this versus 
you know, being 18, 19, 20, 21 and having those same predators there. And, and it was something yeah. for me that made me happy because she's such a lovely person and comes from such a great base. And to think about, you know, the situations that I've been, that I've been in and that have been done to me, I, I hope that they, they, you know, haven't been done to her because, because of that movement. So I'm, I'm really proud of it. Well, then let's talk about Wicked Little Things, 2006. <laughs> um, once again, directed by Joe. Um, did yes. you write this one as well? Yes. You did. Okay. Does he write all his films? Um, yes. He's a massive writer. Um, he has an adaptations and he has done, um, you know, off of drafts, I think, I think off of once or twice off of other drafts. Um, but most of it is organic to him. I would right. say like 99%, and you play if the, not a hundred. Right. You play the lead character, Karen, who's basically a mother driving with her two daughters through the woods of Pennsylvania. And, uh, and, and well, things happen. Um, um, the film was shot in Bulgaria. Is that correct? Yes. Right. Bulgaria, Pennsylvania, whatever, right? Potato, potato. Um, yeah, but Bulgaria, Pennsylvania, it was in Sofia, Bulgaria. And it, it, we shot a lot in the woods in an old house, so it did translate. <laughs> yeah, it did. No, totally. That's, you know, that's the funny thing is like, but it's funny because you say the film was shot in Bulgaria and took place in Pennsylvania. It sounds ridiculous, mm -hmm. but it works. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm guessing this is, again, a scenario where Joe just called you up and said, I'm doing this thing. Do you want to do it? Yeah. He had told me yeah. that he was, um, that he had, you know, this idea and that he had written it and wanted me to read it and everything. And, um, and his 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 scripts take you on such a ride. Um, you know they're not going to be boring. You know that that there's going to be some form of 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 his horror genre in there. And this one was a bold one because it was it was it was zombies per se, but it was children, which have such a different take on thing things. Obviously, because in the in the film, as a single mother, you know you. These these children who are just beautiful, beautiful little children, the actors, you know, and then in the film, you you have to kill them, you have to hurt them. And I remember as an actor doing it, like you, you have to kick them, you have to kick them. I'm like, I'm not going to kick a kid, you know, <laughs> but you, you you have to because you got to get that yeah. zombie out of the way. But it was um, it was again with him interweaving emotion and care and pain in it. Um, he did such a great job in that, in the script. And so it was, it was an easy film to really feel what she was fe feeling. It wasn't an easy film to shoot, but it was an easy film to feel. The two actors who play your, your daughters in the movie are Scout Taylor Compton and Chloe Grace Moretz. Um, I know Scout actually, she's awesome. Um, she's great. She's so great. Um, and, and both of yeah, she's wonderful. And both of them have serious horror genre cred at this point in their careers, for sure. Um, but when you worked with them, they were both, you know, kids. Um, what was that experience like working with those two actors at, at that stage in their lives? Man, I loved it. I have to say this was this was the first film that I had done. I had done a couple kind of Disney-esque movies that, you know, you're one of a few adults and it was a team of kids or something. But this was the first one that I had done where it was me. And then the other two actors in the film were kids and I had so much fun. I think I have a juvenile mind anyhow. So I had so much fun connecting with them and 
and going through this with them, it was really a, a phenomenal experience. I mean, Scout is a fantastic actress and she, her effort is a hundred percent and she, you know, just wanted to do everything perfectly. And she did. And Chloe was 10 or 11. So she is, you know, how old was, and how old was Scout at the time? I want to say Scout was like 15, 14 or 15. Okay. Um, and her dad was yeah. there. Her dad was there and, and, and Chloe's mom was there. And, um, and so it was really fun because we did everything as, as a family, you know, offset. We all went to dinners together. We all did everything together. And so um, I really had a great relationship with those girls. So it was very easy to care for them and very easy to feel on set. Um, it was, it was, a, it was an amazing experience to do it with them and have all of the fear and the fright and the horror genre. There's one scene where you know, there's just blood coming down my face a la Carrie. And then a number of years later, Chloe plays Carrie. And so it, it's funny how, how yeah. it all works out. But it was, it was amazing to see them at that age and then to, to see their careers and the, and the choices they've made and the things they've done. I, lo- I love shooting that movie with them. Have you seen either of them since the film? Mm-hmm. I've run into Scout a couple times. She she did a film with one of my best guy friends, um, and they sent me pictures and, and stuff, and that was great. And then Chloe, um, I've run into a few times, and I've run into her mom a few times. And, um, yeah, obviously she's doing great, so it's been fun. And I'm curious because, I, you know, I was watching – I love Wicked Little Things. And I have to say this is sort of a special place in my heart because I think if I were to really pick a film – that for me was that point where I was like, I really want to work with this actress. It was that film, you know, seeing your work in that film. Oh, um, I love that. You know, uh, kind of made me a, a, a Laurie Herring super fan. Um, and it's interesting to me because you have such an eclectic career. You've been in you know, some really big studio projects like Anger Management, Runaway Jury, stuff like that. Uh, you were, you know, you've done quite a few projects with Adam Sandler. Uh, I know he's a good friend of yours. And then, on the other end, you've done, you know, like your brother is like half and half. And then the other half is like these, you know, genre projects, independent, fiercely independent films with strong, you know, with directors with strong voices. Like, but, you know, those are two very different experiences. Like, how would you sort of for you, how do you sort of contrast those the, the two experiences of, you know, working on big studio pictures and then, you know, doing sort of these kind of independent films that you that you seem to enjoy doing? Well, I think, you know, when I got into this world, I never really cared about, um, I wanted to work. I, I really liked the idea of working. I liked the idea of a character. I liked the idea of exploring it and building it and and working, you know, hopefully hand in hand with the other actors, the director, all of it. And so that tendency takes me more to independent film, no question. And, you know, the the studio films obviously are are, are a huge get and it's a huge payday and it, it is a launch pad to bigger paydays and bigger gets and having the ability to then take that idea of what you love to be able to do in independent films. And if you get to a certain level, then you can take that and do it in studio films because you're at that level. Um, but that's rarefied air. And I think for me, a lot of the studio films that I did get, um, like I did this movie called in crowd, which was a, a, at the time, a huge Warner brothers movie and it was a huge get and it was, you know, supposed to be this launching pad onto that next level, that next level, and then getting there kind of thing. 
Um, it was directed by Mary Lambert, who I fell in love with, who, who directed Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very, why very. Why did you say that earlier? Mm-hmm. How dare you hang me out to dry like that, Lori Harry? No, like, I'm glad you just did it because it's, it's, yeah. that was saving yeah. it to talk about with InCrowd. And I told her that yeah. story and she laughed yeah. and she's phenomenal. I mean, when I met her, she had done all of, you know, or a lot of the iconic Madonna videos. And she had this really strong view of women and sexuality and, you know, all of that. And it was interesting hearing her take on why she cast me. Um, because you never hear that as an actor, you never get really, it was, you, you won the part, but you never really get to know the why of things. And so she, she was great about telling me all that stuff. And, um, and in that movie, the original script was written by Caleb Carr, who is a phenomenal writer and very esoteric and has his own level of creepiness and everything. And um, the studio thought that it was too out there. And so they hired a couple writers to rewrite it and make it more along the genre of, you know, I know what you did last summer and that kind of thing, which were the, you know, huge hits right before this film. And then there was a fight which script they liked better and, you know, and then they rehired Caleb Carr and then they rehired these guys. And by the time the script, you know, went to shoot, it didn't really have, it didn't know what it was supposed to be, I think. Um, I mean, I was so happy to be there. I was so happy to be a part of it, as was everybody. Um, And I met one of my best friends on that film who to this day is, you know, my sister and I will forever be thankful for that film. But it it was supposed to be something different. It was supposed to be you know, this huge movie. And, and I think going through that experience and having no, obviously no say on, on what mattered at all. Um, you showed up and you did your job kind of thing. Um, I had a great time with it and the producers were phenomenal. And, um, but you know, it's not like I got to say what, what take of the film, what cut of the film was going to be the final thing. I think when you're dealing with huge level studio films like that, at my level, you you don't have a say. And whereas when you're dealing with little independent films, you do. They they want you to have a say most of the time. They they hire you because you you have a strong opinion on things and you know, you you can help the film if if your if your takes are the same, which they wouldn't hire you if it wasn't. So I think I always went towards that because I felt like you could build it together a bit. Um as much as an actor can. You're not cutting the film, you're not, you know, you're not doing any of that, but you can try with your performance and and things like that. So I, I loved that. And then also the, I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, you might get these studio films and have smaller parts in them and they're awesome because you get to work with the, the huge big people and that, that feels great. But you might shoot the film like Runaway Jury. I shot for months and months and months, but by the time the film was over, I think I had two or three scenes in it. Um, I wouldn't change that. It was a phenomenal experience, but you do these little independents and you work every single day. You're in every single scene. You shoot for six weeks and you, you know, want to keel over and die because you're so tired, but you've made a film and you've got, you've really gotten to help craft it. So I think I loved that, you know, but different experiences. Do you prefer one over the other? Um, I like to work, you know, so I... I think I really prefer kind of these these small esoteric um maybe genre films where you really get to craft a character and your opinion matters a lot and 
it feels like you're part of it. Of course, that feels better than, you know, being someone who's going to show up for a few days and do this and do that. But I mean, if I had to pick, yeah, I want to work. But if I don't have to pick, those are great too, because you do get to work. You know, the people who are working every day on those films are the, you know, in my, in, in my life, it's been, you know, the Dustin Hoffman's, the Gene Hackman's, the Jack Nicholson's, and it's great to be around them and to watch them and to, to feel it, you know, I mean, that feels great too. So I'll take them all. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting too. Cause I, you know, I, watching the body of work, you know, that you've, that you've done and, and just even just with Joe, you know, like with, with the films you've done with Joe, he's given you very different parts to play in every single one like very different there's not two films that you guys did together where you're playing anything like any of the other things and that's kind of a wonderful thing for an actor getting to stretch you like that and and uh do you think that's a particular strength of joe's or do you think that's sort of a a strength you know a, a, a benefit that comes from working with a director on multiple projects sort of in general i mean i think it's both it's definitely to joe's credit for sure i mean i think he he doesn't want to make the same film twice. I mean, we've had talks about that. He'll, something will come yeah. across his mind and he'll go, no, but I, I mean, I made that with this movie or I did that with this movie. He he wants to explore new things and he has 50 movies in his head, you know? And I think if it was up to him, he would just shoot a new movie every year. But I think it's not, it's not just shooting the movie. It's, it's finishing the movie. It's giving it to someone else to release and then something gets changed and, you know, it wrecks what your experience is. And I know he, he wanted to take a break just because it, it, it isn't just shooting the movie. If you could just make art, you know, in your, in, in your garage, then there's a lot of people who would do it all the time. But it's what you said at the beginning of this, where there's the business to it and stuff like that. And a lot of that you can't control because it's other people making decisions and it's dollars and, you know, dollar signs and they're figuring things out. So, um, I think Joe and I have this relationship, which is one of the biggest gifts in my career where you get to work with one director and you get to trust him implicitly and you just will follow anywhere he leads you and you just get excited by what he's doing and you're allowed to speak your mind and you're allowed to have an opinion and you're allowed to argue. And that just, I mean, that doesn't exist. I mean, getting that rapport with someone, you have to earn it. And so I credit him greatly with being able to write women and being able to write different characters. And and I'm thankful forever that he wanted to keep working with me because I did get to do very different parts and he would never have me play the same part. Um, And I credit him for that. So I think back in the day, actors used to work with the same directors a lot. And then that faded completely. And then now you're seeing it again with certain actors and certain directors. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm always in awe when I see that because I think that's such a cool thing. And if, if I came into this industry as a director and I found an actor who understood me and wanted to put to life what my vision was, I, I would, I would hope I would hold on to that person too. So I'm, I will forever be grateful for, for Joe. Watching the film again, it was uh, great to see you had some scenes with two really great, uh, late, actually, they're both gone now, uh, character actors, Jeffrey Lewis and Ben Cross, um, who are both, you know, really have wonderful, had wonderful careers that, uh, where they did a lot of great stuff. What what was it like working with those two guys? Completely different. 
Um, Jeffrey Lewis was the craziest, funnest, um, just cuckoo. I mean, completely cuckoo, but wanted to be cuckoo. Like he would, he would make faces and, 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 you know, pull tricks. And he was just, he, he was like a, like a lamp that you just turned on and it just sparkled everywhere. He was so much fun (laughs) and just, um, and then, you know, we would roll and he would have that same effervescence on camera but he just knew his shit and, and every, no take was the same. You could never expect, you know, there's a lot of actors that are rigid with their blocking. And so they, you know, every line they will pick up this pen and they know exactly where their hands go and certain things. And he was the complete opposite. So it was, you know, every take would be something completely different, which is so much fun because you are reacting. Um, and, and Ben Cross was, so crazy smart and and a phenomenal actor and had so much carriage and weight and was very very funny too but like in a naughty way he was almost like the the kid in class who didn't get caught um but just had so much gravitas toward you know inside of him too and when the camera would roll it would come out and he just felt heavy um it was an honor to work with with each of them completely different actors um but I'm really glad that I got the chance to to spend some time with them because wow, they're both. I mean, I was thinking great. about that. I was thinking about that watching, you know, going back to eight millimeter two for a second, Bruce Davison and that again, like Joe has, you know, in most of his films put you opposite some great character actors, what people describe as character actors, but just people who have done a lot of great work, you know, and Bruce Davison, I think is in that, is in that grouping too. I mean, yeah, Bruce Davison, he's amazing. Cause he's, he is the silliest and cracking jokes left and right. And then just, you know, turns it on and can deliver a six page monologue if he needs to. And, but you know, the second the camera is off, he's, you know, your best friend again. And just, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, he, he, he's, he's a lot of fun. And the other, the other guy that, that I got to to play with um, because of Joe is Tom Berenger and, in mm-hmm. yeah in true blue and obviously he come i mean he's had so much experience and so many iconic films under his belt and just the nicest person just there to work um so much fun to to just a giving 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 actor yeah i haven't really had too many bad experiences with and there's a few but I, I, I'm, I'm all of those guys just great. They just want to work and they want to play and they want to get the best out of it. And you can't ask for more from someone opposite you. It's interesting watching the film because in the film you, you, you know, you play a mom and, but when you made the film, you weren't a mom, but you are now. But when you, when you think back on that, do you think that there's anything you might've played differently now that you have the, you know, the reality of being a mother to play on? Interesting. Um, you know, I haven't watched it recently. It's funny. I haven't told these stories recently and it's, it's, it's really funny to bring them up and to think about all these things and it makes me happy. Um, I'm sure that if I watched it again, I'm sure I always second guess my choices. So I'm sure that um, I would go, oh, Laura, you did that completely wrong. Like that's bullshit, you know, and whatever. But in the moment, um, I've always been around kids. I've always wanted kids. I've always been around my friends' kids and my brother had kids way before I did and stuff. So I, the, the motherly thing comes very naturally to me because I, I love to, to help and take care of people. And, um, so I think, I think if I saw it, I would recognize that. 
and hopefully that rang true. I mean, I know when I saw it originally, I felt good about all that stuff because I really did care for Scout and care for Chloe and loved the actors. So um, it wasn't hard to pretend to love my children in the movie. <laughs> but um, that's interesting. I, will, I, would, I wouldn't mind going back and watching that and being like, oh, that's bullshit. You didn't know what you are doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's watching the film – there's nothing like that. I mean, it's, your your performance is just, it's a fantastic performance. It's a really, really lovely piece of work. And uh, and there's nothing I could think that I would have said that I would think you would do differently. But uh, but I was I was curious to think from the perspective <laughs> of, I'm also not a mom. So I wondered what you, what you thought of about that. I'll um, let you know. I'll watch it's it It's interesting you know. too because, yeah, yeah, do. I'd be curious. When the film came out, critics weren't that nice to it. There was a pretty kind of weird critical response to it of, you know, it's different things like about using children the way they were and stuff mm. like that. And yet the film has gone on to have a pretty strong following with horror fans. I know quite a few horror fans who really enjoy the movie. So I'm curious for you, when you find that out or when you learn that about a project you've done that at the time when it was released, you know, maybe people didn't get it or critics didn't like it or whatever, but then over time it builds and it builds and it finds in its audience and people start to, you know, talk about it and share their experiences with seeing it and stuff. Does that give you a sort of um, almost a redemptive feeling about a project when you hear that, when you find that out? A hundred percent. I mean, again, I don't, I don't listen to critics much and I don't read anything. So I didn't even really know that, to be honest. Um, I, it does ring a bell that I think I, I remember hearing something about that, you know, kids weren't used the right way or whatever, but I didn't really hold much weight in that because it 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 created a world that it's a fucking all, horror movie <laughs> yeah it's not it's a supposed horror movie to, play to begin to with and also like every <laughs> yeah, world that's created you know whether it's alien or et or or exorcist or anything that you can come up with i mean it's it's from science fiction to horror to whatever it's things that you're creating and worlds that you're creating to have a different experience so and i know those kids were treated you know perfectly and so well i was there <laughs> Um, but it does bum me out that, that people want to attack things like that, because I think whether it's, you know, a true critic that, that earns their living that way or armchair critics or whatever it is, it's so easy to take something down. I do it all the time. I'll watch something and go, well, that's that, come on, that, that that's shot like shit. You can't do that. Why didn't they come around? And then, you know, if I was on set that day, they couldn't come around cause they had no fourth wall, you know, they couldn't shoot that way or or whatever it was, they lost the actor that day. You know, there's so many reasons why things can't be done. And it's so easy to take them down when you're seeing the finished product. But it's so hard to do right when you're shooting the film. So for people to come back and see that film for what we hoped it would be, that does feel good. And it is redemptive because that's why you make a film. You don't make, you don't try, you don't have a hundred people sitting around giving up their days and nights to make a shit film. You, you have all those people around to, to try to make something really great if it's tiny or huge or anything. So yeah, it does feel good if someone's coming back around and going, no, 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 it is, it does fit in the horror world and it does belong. That does feel good. I have a friend that I told I was going to be speaking with you tonight and, uh, you know, he doesn't, he didn't know that you and I had worked together before or friends or anything. I, it's not someone I've known a crazy long time, but I told him I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing him an actor named Laurie Herring, and he went, oh, sweet. <laughs> and he immediately started talking about this movie. 
Oh no way! And I was like, "Oh, you've seen it? You, you're a fan." He was like, oh, "He's like, I love Wicked Little Things. It's fucking awesome." I was like, "That's great! Like, that's so fun to because I, I, I was as I said, I was a big fan of the film when it came out. And it's kind of nice to see that it's found an audience because I think at the time, you know, critics more so I think then than maybe now, but they had they 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 wielded some power, you know. And if so, if every critic came mm. down on something. It could hurt a movie, and, and I think with a movie like Wicked Little Things, it maybe did hurt a little bit, but I'm glad that fans found it, and they sure have. I, I've, I've heard people talk about it. I've heard it, seen it referenced in magazines and reevaluated, and that's kind of nice. I, I hope Joe knows that. Oh, man, I, I will be sure he does, for sure. That makes me happy. So Prom Night, 2008, you play a, it's a smaller part, just kind of, I think you're doing, what, one scene? Yeah, in that film? one scene. Um, you play Brittany Snow's character's mom, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then you're rather brutally dispatched by John by Jonathan. Um, <laughs> yeah. Had you seen the 1988 original yes, Jamie Lee Curtis film? I had. I had it? seen it. Um, it's a great film. I mean, it's a great, scary, scary film. Um, yeah, I was, Joe called me and said, hey, do you want to get killed by Shrek in this? You know, da, 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 da. And I, I, we shot it in one day. I was like, yeah, let's do it. Um, so, I mean, those kind of films when you just come for one day, it, it is so much fun just because you you don't really have a lot invested. You know, you're not you you, you want to do it right yeah. and everything, but you're not your character is doesn't really have an arc and it doesn't really I mean, mine had an end, but there wasn't really much to it. So it's just it's coming and playing. It literally is that. And um, I was a fan. I am a fan of the original film and I love this was a great take on it. And we, I was actually on TV the night I was slipping through something and it was on and I watched, you know, the little bit that was on when I, when I clicked on it, it was, it was fun to do. And I thought Jonathan did a great, he's a good heavy in that. He's a great villain. Yeah. Because the director, Nelson McCormick has become a pretty high, high profile television director as well since, since then, um, you know, you, but you only worked on it with a day, but you, do you remember sort of working with him for that for that day what, yeah he was, was he was great like? he was very very easy and very um he knew what he wanted and that's always great too because when like i kind of said before it's your take on things so sometimes if you do it and it's not right um it's really frustrating um and it's it's hard because you're not speaking their language and they're not speaking yours and you don't know who's right or wrong and i don't think there is a right or wrong i mean the director is shooting the film. So at the end, you know, you have to give him what he wants kind of thing. But if it's not, if it doesn't feel right, it, it doesn't feel right. And that was easy because I kind of thought, okay, I know the character. It's, it's not, it's not rocket science here. And he a hundred percent was like, this is what I want. You got it. Great. And it was easy. And he was very great to work with because he just knew his vision was strong and he knew what he wanted. Even, even for someone like me who was coming on for one day, that he didn't have to um, spend much time or invest much in. He still knew exactly what he wanted from me. So that's great. It's funny watching the movie, too. It's like a who's who of like people that have gone on to have pretty big careers, like Idris Elba and stuff like that, who appear in it. And I was like, oh, so-and-so. Oh, so-and-so. It's like it, the, the cast is kind of stacked. It's, it was sort of a fun thing to see. And Lindsay, uh, Lenzalotta, a producer friend of mine, that of course, that you've met, mm -hmm. um, she worked with Brittany Snow on a, on a feature that she did. Um, so Brittany's another one of those people that I've seen in, in, in a few different horror projects. That, did you actually work with her on it? Um, I guess you did, right? Because you guys are in that scene together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We spent the day together. Um, the way it was shot, though, I was watching, I was like, 
were they actually together? Because most of yeah. your coverage is very separated. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were. Um, yeah, because if I remember, I think we were the way that they had built the set. It was on Sony stages, and and the the set, the rooms were together. So even though they were shot separately, we were together. But um, we spent the day together. She's just the sweetest, loveliest, nicest. You cannot say enough good things. She's just the nicest. And they, you know, people don't have to and be, especially this is when it's someone else's movie and you come on for like a day. That's always interesting to me because, and I think about that when it's my, when it's a movie that, that I'm there every day and someone comes on, you know, I always think be really nice to that person because they're coming on for one day and it's hard. And, um, whether yeah. she thinks about it or not, she was the loveliest. I, this is another film, unfortunately, that the critics just this one in particular of all the work you do, Joe got pulverized for prom night. Came out and it, prom night clobbered oh, wow. by critics. Yeah, mm. they hated it, Aww. and the reasons very specific with that one. They hated that it was rated PG thirteen. Everybody went, oh, prom night. It's a slasher. Movie. How could it be rated PG thirteen? Oh. So everybody felt like the movie basically had no fangs. Um. And so it's interesting to me to think, you know, again, it's like it, it, one, you know, your experience on it one day you come in, you, Joe's involved, John's involved, but then the movie comes out and it's this, you know, people viewed it as basically a bomb. Are, were you, in a, did you have any awareness of that? No. And I, I'm sorry that I always give this answer, but I really did. I really do let go of, of whether it, it, and you know, and obviously, you know, like with Mulholland Drive, I knew it didn't get picked up. Um, you know, with a lot of these movies, I know they're not, you know, huge box office successes or I would know, <laughs> but I do. Um, right. Yeah. I, I try to let go of, of if it's not great stuff because um, I think it just hurts. You know, you spend all that time on something. I mean, that was one day, yeah. but, but, but Nelson spent all that time. Brittany spent all that time. Jonathan spent all that time, you know, and they wanted to make something great. And, you know, I wasn't involved in that movie enough to know. But if it if it could have had more fangs, I'm sure all of those people would have wanted it to. I think it was probably one of those studio decisions going, we have to, re I mean, it's about high school kids. We 100%. have to release this for PG-13. And that's bullshit. Yeah. But you can't do anything about it if that's the movie they want to make and they're the ones writing the checks. And I can't see that. Yeah, I can't, like Joe wrote it, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he did. And I can't see him have wanting I can't see him have wanting to write it as a PG film. No. I just, that doesn't feel like the kind of work Joe I does. can emphatically say no. He he wants to go for it in any way he can. Yeah. And it's funny because watching it, watching Sheck's performance in it, it's like Sheck didn't know he was in a PG film because he plays that role so, he's pretty like fierce yeah, in fierce. it. I was like, this is not a PG performance. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, so the, the next thing that I that I think about is when we worked together on Lineage, which was what you did after Prom Night, um, which uh, people who listen to this podcast have heard about a few times, like when I had D. Wallace on and mm -hmm. stuff. But I thought we should just touch on it because when I wrote the script, so the backstory that that I've that I've explained in the past, but just to give it a quick uh, recap, is that Lineage was written as a feature film. And we had the completed feature script and, and we shot this sort of a pilot, like a short film version of the film. And uh, 
Dean Cundey was the producer and cinematographer on it, and then the film starred Michael Trucco and William Sadler, Tom Atkins, D. Wallace, and yourself. It's a very small cast, tight cast. Um, we shot in one location. Um, and when I wrote the script, I wrote it with you in mind. And my casting director, uh, who was wonderful, said to me when we were casting for the show, and this was my first time shooting in California, in the States, mm -hmm. really. I don't ever shot in Toronto. And so, you know, having access to actors that I didn't have access into Toronto just primarily because of expense, you know what I mean? Flying them in and all that adds all these extra things to your to your budget. So when I've shot in Toronto, generally we use, you know, Toronto-based actors. Um, but so also there was this access, though, to, to all these great actors that, that I was a fan of. But my Canadian brain didn't think that it was possible that they would want to do my <laughs> movie. So my casting director said, stop saying that you want so-and-so, but you know they'll say no, so let's ask this other person. <laughs> like, who do you want? And let's offer it to them. And then if they say no, fine, we'll talk about other people. But just tell me right now who you want. So I said, well, you know, for the part of, of Terry, which was the main character's wife, who's a crucial part in the feature-length version of the film. In, the, in the, the pilot we shot, she's in one scene. But in the feature-length script, and the concept was that everybody who did the short was the same actors we wanted to use in the feature. That character is pivotal. And she's she's um, kind of the whole movie by the end ends up revolving around the choices that she makes in the third act of the film. Um, but I said to my cast director, I want to get sort of a Laurie Herring type. And she was like, why don't we just offer it to Laurie Herring? And I was like, she won't. It's one scene. She's not going to do it. So she said, okay, well... I'm going to offer it to her. So I was like, all okay. right. And then, so I get this call. I'm, yeah, I'm staying in my hotel. I get this call. Yeah, she said yes. I was like, what? Like, it's, it's so I just didn't think that that would be the case. Um, I don't know why, but because I, you know, I was confident in the material. It wasn't even a confidence issue. It just, I had heard so many stories from other directors. Well, you never get your first choice. That never really happens. And I think that was all it was. You know what I mean? Well, it, it's funny because I, um, I had a rule with, with my agent and manager where it was kind of like, bring me everything that comes just because I want to know. Because I've had people come up to me and go, yeah, you turned down my film or whatever. And I go, what film? And they're like, it was such. And I go, I never, I never got that offer. And they're like, yeah, you did. You turned it down. And I go, I, I, not, I never got that offer. So I had the conversation, just bring me everything because maybe who know, you never know, right? Yeah. And so I remember getting that and being told like, it's just a short, you know, don't, don't, don't worry about it. You said bring you everything, but obviously you're not going to do it. And I was like, well, let me read it, you know? And so I read it and I was like, Ooh, this is interesting. And then the promise of, you know, if it does develop into a film, the character's really good, you know, and it would be a really good ride or whatever. And I remember saying, like, no, I'm going to do it. And they were like, what are you talking about? No, it's like, you're not going to do this. And I was like, no, I want to do it. And they were like, it brings your stock down to do one day on a – you can't do it. And I go, stop. I'm just going to go do it. I'm not doing anything that day. Let's go. Yeah. And so it. I think a lot of people get yeah. scared sometimes because the no's don't come from the actors. You know, the no's come from other people. Right. right. And it was the right choice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's funny because it was like <clears> – <throat> I had, you know, like I was an unknown director. Nobody knew who I was and I wrote it. Um, and so, the, so there wasn't the cachet of, you know, now Dean Cundy being involved helped a lot because there's certain people I think who looked at it just because of Dean's involved in the project. And then D Wallace was my, was, had, had sort of become my, 
movie mama while I was living in Los Angeles and sort of helped take care of me. And and Dee was the first actor to come on. And that helped too because she's Dee Wallace and she's, you know, one of the goddesses of the genre. Um, but there was so many scenarios where I was just like, it was sort of, yeah, it's what you're talking about. It's that thing of where I was like, this isn't going to get past agents and managers. They're going to see this and they're going to go, this is like half a day on a short film that may become a feature. Like, um, but I, you know, I have to credit the cast yeah. director on the project because she was the one who sort of pushed me to sort of, you know, just put that aside and go, okay, you know, you're right. The worst thing that can happen is they pass and then, then we'll take it from there. And that didn't happen on this project. Shockingly, everybody we offered it to accepted, you know, and that well, was that's material. Like I'm Michael Truco, who you had worked with prior. Yeah. And I, that's, you know, I remember William Sadler when he arrived and I had never met Bill. And when he arrived, um, the, my AD Scott Senechel came and, and amazing AD from heaven. He was so brilliant. And he brought me over to, to meet Bill and, and I don't know why, but Bill and I are chatting. Also, I blurred out, why did you want to do this? <laughs> Just like that. And Bill goes, why did I want to do it? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, the words, man, I really like your words. <laughs> and I was like, that's something I got to keep in my head. You know what I mean? Is like, because I, I didn't not have confidence in the material. So it's funny to try to explain to people when they're like, why were you so, you know, neurotic about it? Or, and I was like, it wasn't a confidence thing. It was it was, a, it was a pessimism about the business. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like it was, and it was funny because I remember so well that when I found out you accepted the part, so what happens for people who don't know how sort of the process works is once the actor accepts the part then at that point sort of as a director you're given you know the sort of permission to, to talk to them and to have contact with with the actor um you know if you're a big name director you can do that whenever you want but for us lowly little indie guys uh there's a there's sort of these gateways you have to get through the managers the you know agents publicists whatever so at that point my cashier said well, here's Lori's phone number because i said i wanted to call you and talk to you and talk about the part she was like call Lori and you can talk to her so i called get the voicemail and it wasn't a personalized voicemail it was just like you have reached you know kind of an mm -hmm. automated thing i leave a message didn't hear back for you for a day or two tried calling again nothing so by this point i call my casting director i'm like Lori's not calling me back are you sure she accepted this part <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't want to talk to me so she's like uh yeah kevin i'm sure so i remember you arriving on set and i went up to you and we started chatting and immediately there was like a comfort and we were we were great and I but I said to you why did you call me back and you're like I never got a phone call you I would have called you back immediately and I had somehow been given the wrong number someone else was like Ooh. <laughs> so some person got like <laughs> yeah some person got voicemails of like this little Canadian director be like um sorry to bother you again but when you get a chance like um because I yeah I, I was like so paranoid about like <laughs> <laughs> stalking you but i really wanted to talk about nope never the got the messages um yeah do you remember though like you know when you got it um were you told like you know uh, oh you know michael truco dean Cut like were you told who the attachments were or did you just get it did you just say yes off the um, material i got the material and it had you know th who was doing it so you dean cundy da -da -da -da, and um I have, I've worked right. with a lot of first-time directors and, you know, most of the time it's gone really well. And even if the end product wasn't great, my experience was great. And I think I learned a long time ago right. not to base, not to base 
my view of things, how the end product is just, you know, we only live this life once and, and, and I know that there's a lot that we need to do in it. And I know, you know, there's a lot of goals we want to reach and, and milestones and all of that kind of stuff. But if you had a great time doing it, it was worth it, you know, and, and it's an experience. And so, and I, I believe that for, for full length features that I've done that, you know, was, was two months out of my life and, and stuff like that. But for this, I, you know, I read it and the material was really interesting and the merit of it being, you know, where it would go in a full script in a full movie was, was, um, obviously very interesting to see that and to see that build. And, um, I don't think I, I think I already argued to say yes, um, before, I mean, I know I argued to say yes before, uh, we found out who else was in it. And then I think we found out who else was in it. And my manager was like, well, I mean, other actors we know are doing it and whatever. And I was like, I already, I already said I'm going to do it. So I think that's the way it played out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, cause I remember when I, when we first met and, and I didn't know this, but you had worked with Michael Trugo, who was the lead in the film, uh, who's in like every scene you had worked with him before. Yes. Yes. And, um, and that was on a show. Yeah. I think, right. Yeah. What was the name of it? Um, do you know? <laughs> I don't know. I think it, or it was like a Lifetime movie or it was something like, I remember you guys saying, I think you guys played. It was a Lifetime movie. Girlfriend in it, or something, it was a Lifetime movie. Mistaken. Yeah. Was it yeah. a Lifetime? I think yeah. so. Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, he's so great. I mean, he just, he's, he's the best and he's so easy and I've been, I mean, man, I'm, I, f- I feel like I'm repeating myself because I've said that about a few people, but I think it also, to be honest, is is kind of a testament to you, you kind of find the people that you want to work with. So, you know, you writing the material and kind of overseeing the casting kind of thing might lead you to the same people that I like, if that makes sense, right? Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was. I remember, you know, when we were shooting the scenes with you and Michael, and, and the scene you guys said, it was a very, mm-hmm. like, intimate scene. You guys are in bed together. Um, you know what I mean? And it, but partially because you guys knew each other, I think, but also just because you guys are both very generous actors. And, and I was so pleased as a filmmaker to get into this scenario where I was like, you know, these guys have one scene together and I'm throwing them in bed together and they have to do this really heavy scene where Michael finds out his mom has died and Laurie has to try to comfort him and he's resistant to it. And there's a lot going on in the scene because I remember thinking if I'm going to offer there has to be Laurie, this there. Laurie Herring, this one scene, it better have a lot of yeah. fucking sub- substantial stuff going on in it. Like it can't just be some, you know, thing. Um, so I had to sort of distill what was a bunch of scenes in the feature length script into one scene in, in the short. And, um, but you know the, and you know Truco too to 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 his credit. I mean, he's such a and he he was on the show and we got to talk about this a bit. But um, you know, he's such a kind so person kind. and such a generous yeah. actor. You know, for him in this movie, he had to do like you know you're talking you were talking about on on Mummy and the Armadillo and Truco kind of had that experience on this project where he was he was the mainstay and there was sort of this revolving door of people coming in and working off of him. You know, so one day he's working with D. Wallace and you. The next day he's working with Tom Atkins and Bill Sadler, mm-hmm, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And and he loved that. That was so he thought that was so great. He was like, This is like a this is like getting all these acting yeah. classes from all these really great diverse actors. You know, what I mean he was like, It's really fun. They come in, I get to play with them and watch them and you know but you know, watching you and, and Michael do that scene, I was like, you know, I was I was so I felt so safe as a filmmaker 
because I was like, oh, they're just killing it. You know what I mean? Um, and you know, and I'm curious, like when you were shooting it, you know, because I knew you knew who Dean was, but like you've kind of already spoken to this, but like, were you thinking like, I wonder if he's being quiet because he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, or if because he's just comfortable with? This, yeah, you with know, this I think after you've done a lot of work, um, you kind of know when when you when you come on that you're gonna give it what you do right um and you know what you do is something might not might not be what they want might not be you know whatever but it's something it's not it's not crap you know it's it's gonna be something in the in the realm of of not bad acting it's in there you know and 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 so Mm -hmm. I always you know think that after you've done enough work and you're across from someone who's done enough work and you know there's someone there who's done enough work you kind of can just say at least from the beginning, give us what you got. And then if there's problems, the director, you know, in a case like this, where we didn't have any prep, we didn't have rehearsals, we didn't have, I didn't return your phone calls, you know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I think at least my take on that was I'm going to come in, I'm going to do what I do. Truco's going to do what he does. You know, I didn't know Dean, but clearly he knows what he's doing. And if there's a problem and, you know, I get called out on it, then I'm here. I accepted the job. So I'll do the best I can to give him what he wants. And so, you know, you did, you did tell me before we shot, you know, you know, just, we haven't talked about this a lot, but this, you know, this is what I want. This is the, da, 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 and it was right in line with what I was already thinking. So it was seamless. And then, you know, Truco, it's that chemistry thing you were talking about. It, it's easy with him. You know, it's so easy. And I, I think we just fell into it easily. And and then after we did, you know, the first take and we changed a couple things or whatever, you were like, this is exactly what was in my head. And so that always makes you feel good as an actor because you're like, yeah. great, the, the, my thoughts on this and my take on this, you know, are in the realm of what he wants. And that that does feel great. You know, it feels great to pivot sometimes too, but it's, it, it feels great when you don't know the director. Yeah. And you're picking up what I'm putting down and vice versa. That feels good. I mean, it was, an, it's an interesting thing when, as a writer and a director where you, where you write something for someone and then you get that person because in a way, and you're also familiar with their work as an actor, right? So for me, I had seen your films and I had seen what I thought, you know, and it's all conceptual at that point. I had an idea of how I thought you would be as a performer and and not how you'd be as a person, but how you'd be as an actor on set, and how you would interact with the material, and yeah. the co- and and then you go and you do it though, and it was so like yeah, that's what I thought she was going to do, and that's what I wrote, and that's how I wanted it done. So there's really not that much to do here, and it's sort of disappointing almost in a way because you're like, oh, I don't get to go like, can we try that? Because it just there wasn't, you know, and and I. I've always been one of those filmmakers that that really does believe though if you cast right you've just done yourself you've just saved yourself so a work. lot of work on set you've saved yourself a lot of time and a lot of work and um and on this one our cat like we cast right you know what I mean it just we did, I remember Dean was saying to me after and and Dean was like such a sort of godfather to the project and a mentor to me and um you know and and it was remarkable how few takes we were doing on things. And I remember getting, having like this moment Anxiety. of being like, am I not, you know, pushing people enough for something like it, this? Cause we're doing, and I, so I, we had a break and I, I asked the idea is like, can you just give us 10 minutes? Cause I wanted to talk to Dean. And I pulled, cause Dean was the producer. So I pulled Dean aside and I said, 
you know, I feel like we're getting this in crazy low takes. Is that, but you know, am I not kind of pushing as hard as I could or should I be trying to, he was like, this is exactly what you, we talked about getting. I think you're just getting what you want. He's like, that's because you were prepared and because you cast well and because, you know, you and I spent a ton of time talking about how this movie was going to look. So I knew where we were going to put things and we scouted the location and this is just preparation. That's why you're not doing a lot of takes. I and mean, I felt good about come on, that response, that. you do feel good about um, that. that. That is what prep is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be that difficult on the day, you know, and, and that's, as actors, that's the gift that the production gives to us is, and I've always been blown away by this because say your call time's 5 a.m., you know, you get to set, someone picked you up if you're, you know, shooting location or whatever, someone picked you up. So they were up before you. You get to set, there's your trailer. Well, someone was there setting that up too before you, you know, you get in there, your wardrobe's in there. Someone was there before you doing that. And yeah. every step of the way, I'm like, no matter how tired you are, no matter what is going on, no matter what, someone was doing more work than you already, you know, and, and that always gets to me. And so uh, what you, to, to what you're saying right there, you guys did the work, you know, you knew what you wanted and, and in, in you, you shot for what you wanted and you got it and it shouldn't be that hard on the day you, you should roll in. And unless there's torrential storms yeah. or your Jenny blows or something like that, you should be able to get exactly what you want. I think people have this idea too, like from seeing things like Project Greenlight and stuff like that, or you know, hearing stories of like, you know, the, the excitement of a tumultuous set where there's, you know, oh actors fighting or someone sleeping with someone. And it's like, I hear those stories. I'm like, oh my god, I'm so glad I haven't had to endure that kind of production. I mean, I've been on those productions, and it happen. just it does fuck everything up because it a scene that's supposed to go so easy, and I know that she's been sleeping with him, but her boyfriend, who's not on the movie is here now and he doesn't clearly know that but yet they're fighting because of this yeah. all of a sudden the scene that should be so easy and these two really should not have much between them the scene is here all of a sudden there's like a weird answer to a question with a weird tone and you're kind of like no 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 this isn't real life let's get back to the script but it, it does float in it floats in and and yeah. I think that's why they really try very, very hard to keep actors apart during shooting. I mean, emotionally. Yeah, I remember Truco was saying to me too that when he arrived, because he was he was there the longest. He was in every scene. So um when he arrived, he was like, but he was like, you know, the, the and I and I have a lot of this is because I had the most I, the amazing crew on that. I mean, the, the crew are all people that work with Dean on on huge movies like Spielberg movies and stuff, right? So it was this crazy crew. I was the youngest person there is also the funny thing to think about. You know, that's funny to me when I think back on like I look at pictures from the set and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like twenty, Baby. what was it, twenty nine, yeah. twenty something like that when we shot it. Yeah, you know, and I'm very clearly the youngest person on set. Um. You know, I remember Truco saying that when he arrived, he was like, you and Dean were so chill and you guys were having fun. And it just set a tone that the crew was picking up on. And he said, so it was right away. I just was like, this is going to be good. This is comfortable. This is, you know, there's this is we're creating and we're having fun doing it. And everybody's listening to each other. And and that's to me, like as a director, that's what I tr like. That's a hugely important aspect of my job, I think, is to create an experience where we're here to create and we're here to play together. And we're here to do a job. And, you know, it's serious, but. We're making movies. If it's not fun, yeah. what are we doing? No, I think that's important. You know? <laughs> I mean, there's been a lot of sets where I think 
that's forgotten and it bums me out because at the end of the day we are playing. I mean, they're jobs and it's people's sustenance and things like that, but we are playing and it, it, when it gets all vicious and bitchy, I've been on so many sets where like it's a night shoot and it's, it's late, it's 4am, but everyone's bitching and everyone's this and that. And you kind of go, just don't please, please, please keep a good attitude because it's the only way we're going to get through this and, and do what we, cause everything is relative. You know, this person starts bitching it, reminds this person they can bitch and then here, 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 here. And, you know, I think that's one of the biggest jobs of the director is um, somehow magically to handle that and, and create that ease and create that time because it, it does trickle down fast. Yeah. I, I mean, when I was working as uh, doing playback, you know, the very beginning of my career and working on sets and that was the first job I had was doing playback. Um, you know, and so I'd stand there at like the monitor with the director and just make sure like the monitor was working and stuff. But it was great because I got to be really close to directors and I got to watch them work. And one of the first great directors I worked with was, um, oh, wow. Gus Van Zandt. Um, and I only got to work on two. Yeah. And it was only two days, but I worked on this movie, Finding mm. Forrester uh, with, that he did with Sean Connery. And, um, and, and watching Gus Van Zandt work, I was like, he's so chill. And so that energy permeated the whole set. It just did because the next job I did, some of the same people worked on that job and right. I won't say who it was, but the director Different. on that job put out the opposite mm -hmm. vibe and, and everybody was affected by it and the cast was affected by it. And in that particular production, the reason I think the director was like that was because his lead actor was a prick and, and just was not there to make to create and not there to have fun and not there. He was there yeah. for other reasons. And that, that can, and the director, I think, just couldn't yeah. figure out how to deal with that. And that bums me out. That goes back to what I was saying about auditioning is, you know, it just it sucks that auditioning sometimes is is the necessity um, because you you're in such a false pretense for what is going to happen on the set. You know, you're in one room. Anyone can come in that room and turn it on and wow everybody for five seconds and da da da, da and, you know, and then you you hire that person you think it's great and you know that's why so many productions talk to other people i mean i've gotten i have gotten called by casting directors that i know that say to me can i ask you a personal question off the record and i'm like <laughs> depends on what it is and then they'll say you worked with so and so yeah. can you please tell me the truth and you feel it's tough because you feel like a turncoat if you do tell the truth at all but in the same breath you shouldn't have been an asshole during filming. You should have, you should have respected people's time, money being spent and everything. And so, you know, sometimes I've, I've said, you know, I'm going to say no comment on this one. And then other times I've said, you know, I remember one time saying, is there an adult on set? And she said, what? And I said, is there going to be an adult on set? And she goes, I, I mean, we're all adults. And I said, are you? Because there wasn't an adult on our set. And what I mean by that is there going to be someone who's going to yeah. stand up and go get your shit in line. And this is a job at the end of the day. You're getting paid a boatload of money. Like, do your job. And if there's no one who's going to say that, then he's going to act that way. You know? But I think yeah. it does catch up. I mean, I, I at least I, I know a lot of examples where it catches up. But it sucks because, like I said, you know, everyone hopes to make a great. You're supposed to have fun. You're supposed to, you're supposed to do the best you can. Project originally had a different actor attached in the lead role of Jake that, that Michael Truco played. And I got a phone call from an actor friend of mine. Um, 
an established actor who had just done a film with, with this person. And he said, I, I don't like doing this, but I need to tell you right now, you're going to have a hell of a time with this person. Ooh. I just did a film with them and this is how it went. Yeah. And I listened. In that particular instance, I thought, I thought about a lot. I thought about who this person was that was telling me it. I thought about what I knew already about this particular individual that was cast. I discussed it with, my, with Dean and with my casting director and my AD. We all talked about it. And we decided to choose a different actor. And I wow. have never regretted that decision. Yeah. Yeah. I've never looked back at that yeah. and thought, oh, I wonder how it would have gone that way. And it's what you said. You did your prep because having been on those sets, it's 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 hard because you're you're entrenched then, you know, and it's it's a bummer. So if that would be any advice I would ever give. Well, and I worked my fucking ass yeah. off to get that movie yeah. made. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was so hard. Like, it's hard to because we had a fair a fairly large budget for that kind of shoot. You usually get not much money mm-hmm. to do something like that. And we had a pretty good sized budget. And, you know, it was hard to put the financing together. And it was, it took me two years to get that thing made. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not letting some person come in and fuck up two years of my work because they're having a bad day or something. I'm just, that's, you know, if I have any say in that, and I kind of do because I'm the director of the film, um, you know, I'm not going to have that. So. Well, but that's, but that's you know, one of your I attributes. Don't. You're strong. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you were st- first time or not. I mean, first time in the state shooting, whatever or not. I never, you're a strong director. So I think, I think that that sets the mood. It definitely does to me. Yeah. I think, I think, and I think that's, you know, I think you have to be, if you're a director, I think that's part of the job, you know, and I think that helps you to work with, with, yeah. Okay. So we got one more film to talk about here. Um, Hunger, which you did in 2009. Uh, You shot in Alabama on that film? Yes. Huntsville. Yeah. Do you remember how many days you shot on it? Yeah, we had a really short shoot on that. I think we shot like 21 days. It was, um, we okay. shot six day weeks. We shot 21 days. I, I mean, it, it was, it was around there. It was 2021. We were there a month basically, but, um, it was, that was intense. That shoot was super, super intense because the idea of the, of the movie was that there was somebody who had abducted all these different people and basically made us a human experiment to see what would happen if people from all walks of life um, were contained together with no food, water, but no food, and what you would do after a certain number of days. So in true horror genre, would we start to hurt each other? Would we start to kill each other? Would we start to eat each other to survive? And so the movie Hunger... Um, is the apt title, I guess. But it was intense because we all, the, the actors in that, um, I didn't know any of the other actors on that. And um, what the director wanted us to do, Stephen Henches, wanted us to do was um, kind of to get there. And we, we had a little bit of rehearsal, but um, he had asked all of us before we started shooting because we shot, and that was another film we shot chronologically. Um, but that was, we had to on that one because it has to see what it does to your, you know, to your physical self, if you're not eating kind of thing. So he had asked us all, um, you know, to come into it just with normal bodies, whatever your body was just to come into it with that. 
And then when we got there, we kind of made a pact that we would all eat the same thing. And it was very little calories. I mean, very, we ate like, you know, the tiniest piece of chicken and like two steamed pieces of broccoli or something like that. It was, it was crazy. And we were shooting, I think we were probably on the the second week or end of the second week or something. And I went to him and I was like, dude, I can't survive on this. I have to eat more than this. (laughs) Like I, I. The title was super appropriate on this movie. Oh my God. I mean, I think I lost like 10 or 15 pounds on that. I mean, I was bones when I came out and, um. And I said to him, I said, some, some, some people came in with a little more meat on their bones in this. So I think they're okay. But like, I got to sneak some grub because I can't, I can't do this. And, um, and he, he gave me the go ahead to, to eat a little more because I was like getting dizzy and stuff. But it, um, it was intense because you, we shot obviously in one location. Well, there were bits and pieces of the movie kind of when we got abducted and that kind of thing that we shot separately. But in Huntsville, we were all in this, they, they built this, you know, set on a stage and, um, you wear the same wardrobe, you know, you have four of the same wardrobe, but they all were, you couldn't wash them or anything because it had to have the same, you know, accumulative dust and dirt and grunge and everything like that. And to make it perfect. So it was, it was a tough shoot, but it was, it was an intense movie. And anytime as an actor, you get to do something like that was amazing, but it was, um, it was a great character. So it was, a, it was a, it was a strong character and really, really fun to play. And he's a phenom- he's a really, really good director and knew exactly talk about planning. He was like you, he had it planned to perfection. And so he had an answer for every question. He kind of set the mood and um, some some of those some of the actors it was their first film they had done an extensive amount of theater and other things but so it was interesting kind of seeing different people kind of their take on shooting that movie because it's I've never shot one like it you know where it's it's one set one yeah. place one I mean Mummy was like that but it 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 wasn't at all like that <laughs> you no, got to eat very different vibe yeah. Yeah, and the only other actor I think in it that I really kind of recognize, Lyndon Ashby, I've seen in in, in new. Lyndon, Lyndon has done a ton the rest of, of the cast, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's. I great. just I didn't know him when we started, but he became a good friend. He's um right, very. He he became a very good friend on that shoot because he was, um, a very strong actor and 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 definitely knew what he was doing and very funny and silly. So in moments when you're just like, I can't take anymore, you know, there would be a great a great (laughs) brevity and lightness to it and stuff like that. That's the great thing when you're not a method actor is you can crack dirty jokes in between takes and things like that. (laughs) And I read that you were the first person cast on the project. Was this, um, did you audition for it? Was this an offer type situation? It was an offer. Um, yeah, I was the first person. Um, sometimes you get, you know, sometimes you get involved in casting, you know, you get to read with other actors and stuff. I, I wasn't in this. Um, but I had done the student film of this director a while before. And, um, and he's, he's, he's one of my best friends now. Um, and we had, we had to have friendship all the way through. And so when he was doing this, he had said to me, will you do this? And I read it and I was like, whoa, (laughs) yes, I will. Um, again, it's just, it's a tiny, 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 tiny film, but it was a great ride as far as an actor. I mean, it was hard and you want, you want, well, I, you're a character. Like it's your film. 
Like she carries the movie. You know what I mean? It's that, so that's got to be, of course. I would imagine as an actor, that's very appealing when you can read the script. You're like, oh, undoubtedly, this is definitely like this is the meatiest role in this whole piece. Yeah, it it is fun because you, you without without much meat, <laughs> without much meat, it's the air, <laughs> a lot of air. Um, yeah, yeah, that yeah. does feel. And I mean, maybe that's why I kind of tend to the smaller movies because you do get to wear it, you know, more than 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 going after. And there are different times in your career. Sometimes you want to be like number 14 on the call sheet, work one day a week and go adios, you know, but I think when, when you're in the mindset where you really want to work, you, you look for those and you hope for those and you do those instead of other things. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a, that was a good one. I mean, it's a really dark movie. Was that the atmosphere on set? Was it a, was it, was it a fairly serious somber tone while you were making the film yes no I mean I think I think he really wanted everyone to have an easy time staying in character and everything so there wasn't like a ton of you know everyone wasn't running around being jolly but um in the same breath I think it it for for me it's easier if there's jokes in between and and things like that because you want to have a good time and it does help the crew a lot. I mean, you don't do it for that reason because that would be ridiculous. But I think if that is your tone and that is your way, um, then then it keeps everyone's spirits up and stuff like that. And that was that was the way people were on that film. So even though there was kind of like a darkness to what we were doing and a, a literal darkness because there was very little light and things like that, um, it it's still there was still brevity and things like that because he knew what he was doing so i think he could allow for that when the film came out a lot of critics and and audiences talked about having kind of a saw inspired quality was that something you think the director was going for or aware of in some way or do you think that that was just you know something people kind of projected onto the film i think it was probably projected i i think he wanted to definitely make his own film and wanted to stay away from anything that he had seen i know He's a very intelligent director and thinks a lot about all aspects. So I'm sure he wanted to have something that stood on its own. I think so many times, especially with horror, you get compared, you know, and you're either better than or worse than or nothing alike. Um, so I think that probably projected just because of the the cannibalism and the, you know, whatever. But ours was definitely, I felt like a very different film because it, it wasn't, it wasn't by choice. Nothing was by choice. It was by circumstance. And then, you know, you fought it and, and, you know, I think that was the, te- well, you find out in the film, that is the test of what would people do? You know, I mean, you go back to movies like Alive and things like that. And I, we talked a lot about what would you do? Would you be able to do it? And the thing is, is I can speculate all I want, but until I'm actually starving in a cave and there's a dead body, I don't know. I mean, maybe I would, but I don't know. I like my steak well done. I would have a hard time. Yeah. Well, so I want to ask you as we wrap up here, what you got coming up in the horizon? What's, what are you working on? Do you have anything coming down the pike? Are you, are you like, what's, what's going on? (laughs) Tell me. Well, I took a lot of time off. I want to know. Yeah. Well, me too. Um, I took a lot of time off. Um, I have (laughs) two children I have a boy and a girl and um, I really wanted to focus on them just because I feel like this, this world is such a passion and I love it so much, but it also kind of encompasses you. And I really wanted to concentrate on being there for them. And again, my world has been 
on a Tuesday, you don't know what you're doing. And then on a Friday, you find out you're flying out of the country for three months. And so, you know, it, it, I wanted a stability. So now that they're a little bit older, I'm going to jump back in and, um, and, you know, see where I land. Um, there is a, a Western to not in the horror film at all, but in the shoot 'em up, a Western that, um, is in the pipeline. It's a, a a director that I have worked with before that is sending me, well, he sent me a, he's just rewriting it, but has sent me a script. So we'll see if that happens. And if not, um, we'll see what else is down the line. Thank you, Lori. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Kevin. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane and produced by Cindy McLean. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Our supervising producer is Jason Hill. For exclusive bonus content, giveaways, and contests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by our supporters and listeners like you. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of Kevin's conversations with some of horror culture's titans of terror, as well as the many hours of bonus content, consider subscribing to our channel. But that's not the only way you can support what we do. If you like what you hear and you want more, get the word out to your friends, your family, random people on the street, retail cashiers, unattended babies, the hot guy you work with, on-duty members of law enforcement, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for the guts and gore of horror. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.